My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is, is Anamorphology. The Invasion, The Visitor, The Encounter, The Message, The Predator, The Capture, The Stranger, The An- the Secret, The Android, The Forgotten, The Reaction, The Chain, The Unknown, The Escape, The Warning, The Decision, The Slow Departure, The Simple Discovery, The Proposed Threat, The Conspiracy, The Separation, The Deception, The Suspicious Existence, The Sacrifice, The Diversion, and The Beginning. Hey, it's another mailbag. Yes, I love mailbags. This one's very exciting because I didn't prepare the categories. To our do. I don't even know what's coming. An ultimate mailbag. I don't, I don't know. know. We, Maybe our last mailbag. Yeah, I think that's a topic for discussion. What we do. Fascinating. After well, we read fifty-four. As our listeners are well aware, Jenny and I have been trading off preparing these mailbag episodes, and we've divided things that our listeners want us to talk about into categories. Uh-huh. So I, in this new world of Zoom, I have shared the list of categories with Jenny and Gray through Zoom chat. And I'm, just, I'm not sure I'll be able to cross them out as easily on my computer. We'll just have to, we'll have to delete them and repaste the list. What if we just put white out over the screen? It's your computer, so I'm okay with okay, that. Great. New plan. <laughs> great. As long as we've got a plan. Before we get started, I wanted to talk about our favorite middle grade 90s children's series author Catherine Ooh, Applegate. Yeah, uh, Catherine Applegate has been using her platform over the past couple of weeks to tweet all sorts of great stuff in support of Black Lives Matter, and you know a little bit of self promotion, which is very understandable. <laughs> um, I think she has a new a sequel to her last book coming out soon oh, that she's excited nice. about. Um, but she's been really vocal on Twitter in support of protesters and police reform, and that's very awesome to see. That is awesome. It really validates my like positive feeling about so much of the stuff in the series that seems really well intentioned, but like also just it was twenty years ago and we had like a very different set of like it was a very different context for a lot of the stuff. Like being a relatively woke person twenty years ago just meant something totally different. And I I really appreciate that she has moved with the times and like continued to to grow an awareness of this stuff. Yeah, she seems really great. If you want to dunk on J.K. Rowling and then decide whether it ended out later or not, this is your chance. Well, I would like to say on behalf of people who perhaps read other series in the 90s, that (laughs) uh, in addition to K.A. Applegate killing it on the Twitters, one of the things that K.A. Applegate has been really vocal about in a great way has been trans rights. Um, she's very vocal about that in general, and she's talked about it a little bit in the last couple of weeks, and that's awesome and very um, commendable, especially because she has um, a daughter who's trans. And another author who's been great on Twitter is actually Tamara Pierce, Ooh, um, who nice. also tweeted an entire thread about her support for trans rights, um, just really been great. And a thing that both of them have brought up, kind of as Jenny said, is that they were trying really hard to be, I mean, they didn't say woke, but like accepting and open and to progressive. Yeah. yeah. To validate the rights of, of trans people and, and uh, gay people and, you know, people of color. And if they didn't always do it right, Tamara Pierce and Kate Applegate, they at least were trying. And when they got criticism or, you know, reflections from their audience, they took that criticism and were better the next time. And you can see that, 
you know, Tamara Pierce was the author that I read the most in my teens. Um, and, um, and she basically said, like, listen, I absolutely know going back to read some of these books that I did not do as well as I could have done, because I just didn't know any better. And I was trying, but I wasn't doing a great job. I would do it differently now. But instead, I'm just trying to get better. And you can see that progression in her books. And I have no doubt that like 20 years from now, we'll be looking at the stuff we said and be like, how did we not realize how cringy that was? Absolutely. Or just, you know, the words we use will have become cringy, you know. Exactly. And hopefully we'll be moving forward in a way where right. we can look back at now and wince. Yeah, and, and hopefully, like, we hmm. as individuals are still open to that, open to that criticism, but also open to understanding that, you know, we don't we don't know everything and all we can do is try to be loving and kind and open to other people's experiences to the best of our ability. And, you know, I think the three of us try really hard to do that and to be empathetic to people whose experiences are different from our own. And so I'm really, really pleased that some of our beloved authors have done a great job of that. And I am going to take 30 seconds to dunk on J.K. Rowling, who is (laughs) a trans-exclusionary radical feminist and being a real jerk about it. Is there a way to be a turf without being a jerk about it? Nope. That is You could probably be a less vocal turf, but yeah. Yeah, she's being real vocal and like, she's not great. And, you know, a lot of that has been in her worldview for a long time. People have pointed Mm -hmm. out some of the issues in the Harry Potter books. And that is very disappointing for somebody who loved, loved those books. Um, It's hard to separate the art from the artist for me. And I'm incredibly disappointed by her attitude and the way that she's approached this. And also, she's just a real jerk. We don't like her. And 30 (laughs) Second Rant. Yeah, no, legit. I think... I think I might take a little different stance on like art versus artist in this case. I, I don't know. Maybe my feelings about that will evolve also, but yeah, it's, it is very nice when you can look back and still support the artist as is the case with Animorphs. I mean, I'm sure that Kay Applegate is not perfect, but yeah. I have one observation to throw in to make this a slightly more nuanced take. I'm not, I'm no fan of J.K. Rowling and I'm not as attached to like, I don't feel as personally betrayed by her celebrity or whatever, but I remember maybe like back in 40, I brought up Michael Grant wrote an essay in 2015 online about like how he's like the most diverse kids lit author. And he, he used a list of like all of the non-straight and non-white characters that he's made as protagonists in his thing. He's like, what? It's not that hard. Like, you know, like (laughs) I get invited to panels, but I don't even want to, you know, like all this kind of stuff. And right, fairly well. It didn't hurt too much from that pattern. (laughs) Right. Fairly, (laughs) you know, like you could imagine it was well-intentioned, but like some people called him out on Twitter and he got real sensitive about it and wrote an essay. Right. Mm -hmm. So like even, I I don't see Catherine Applegate as that kind of person, but like Michael Grant definitely has that personality. And I think the worst thing about J.K. Rowling is that she has a uniquely large platform Mm -hmm. and her, her defensiveness about like, I'm just a woman with some opinions is like, so at the same time, like naive and like really egotistical. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think it reflects really poorly on her. And I also think she's hundred percent wrong. Yeah. When you have that kind of platform, you can't just be having an opinion. JK Rowling knows how many people she's reaching. Like this isn't just like, Oh, I just wanted to write this cool story. Like I feel like there's a very different level of responsibility. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're tweeting about shit, like you can see how many followers you have. Shut up. And I mean, she probably wants to use that to spread her ideas. And I think her ideas are bad. Trans women are women. Moving on. (laughs) 
should we, I mean, I know, Ray, I, I did the nose thing, so you're supposed to pick the first category, but I kind of think we should start by this trans Tobias category that I see in Ted's list. Let's do you, it. You on board with that? Yeah. Okay. Oh, it's like there are no rules. <laughs> just breaking all the rules, just like the it. Animorphs are doing <laughs> by telling the world about their secret. It all comes back to the Animorphs, no matter how far we stray. That's what we tell ourselves. So, Ivina Pizer left an excellent comment pointing out a particular headcanon of Tobias that we didn't touch on at all. I guess a popular headcanon in Animorphs fandom is Tobias as trans-feminine. And in book 43, when he gains the ability to morph Taylor, mm. part of his response... I think we talked a lot about how like being Taylor, like being a beautiful woman is so nice... Um, Avina Pizer points out, Tobias's last two books characterize him in human morph as struggling with it, feeling intensely awkward and strange, and not being good at the social aspects. In Taylor morph, there's none of that. He's enjoying himself, he's covering mistakes by smiling, he's being watched and totally okay with it, he's pleased that the barista responds more to him than to her, because he's alive in a way she isn't. And then they go on to say, this is the book that cemented transfeminine Tobias's headcanon in my mind. Ooh. Um, I mean, I could definitely also see it. I don't want to like stomp on this theory because it's great. I can also see it as the sort of escapism where like Axe can do whatever when he's in human morph and like Tobias can like sort of be free in a way because he's not dealing with the baggage of his old body. But like maybe some of the baggage of his old body was that it felt like the wrong gender to him. That's kind of awesome. Mm -hmm. I love that. I also like it as a, we talked about Tobias as a trans metaphor sort of unintentionally. And this is like, that reading, again, even with that in the back of my mind, kind of escaped me when I, yeah, when I read me it. Yeah, And it's just, it's right there in the text in a way that I think is really cool. And it was the first time anyone morphed across gender in humans, I think. We had Marco do it recently with the governor. Right. But I think we mentioned at the time that that was the first time and it wasn't commented on. And I kind of love that <laughs> sort of a combination of it wasn't commented on or like Tobias didn't call it out because it just felt really right to him. But getting into how right it felt would have been like opening this whole trans thing that like the series wasn't ready for or like would have been going too far. I don't really think there was that intentionality in the author's parts, but maybe. Right. I love that view. And it's kind of a nice idea of a, a sort of gender acceptance that we sometimes don't get as, a, mm. a, as opposed to gender essentialism. Mm -hmm. That there's a kind of idea that we don't need to comment upon the fact that Tobias feels comfortable in a woman's body as in other series there's a lot of like oh well like even though I'm pretending to be a girl it's like not mm. this you know I'm still a boy like there's a lot of that kind of essentialism yeah, yeah. if and Marco like, had well actually even when Marco even when worked Marco the governor did he didn't make a big deal out of it exactly which might be growth for Marco or for the series or both well I think it's, it's interesting both. that it never comes up and like I kind of wanted like I kind of wanted there to be more commentary on it just because to me, the idea, like, the the sex of your body is, like, so tied up in, like, going through puberty and being a teenager, and, like, that's in the culture everywhere. It was, like, it seemed ridiculous to me that people wouldn't remark on it, but I actually like the interpretation of it being fairly unremarkable. Yeah. Even if that was more out of narrative economy, because these <laughs> books just need to go, 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 or go. avoid the right. awkwardness of a teenage boy in a teenage girl's body. I yeah, you can't, say, you can't say anything about... Uh, like adult woman's body from the perspective yeah. of a teenage boy in Animorphs. I did really like that the observations that Tobias does have about being in Taylor's body were all very specifically about 
being Taylor, mm. not about, I mean, it's been a while since I've read it now, but I feel like it wasn't about being a girl or even right, about having right. a different human body than the one he's used to. It was all about being this specific person, mm. which feels really, yeah, feels really authentic. I like that. Since Jenny scooped the category, <laughs> it's up to you, Gray. Well, shall we go with something that may be slightly related and talk about Esplin's gender? Ooh, yes. Yeah. All right. This is a um, this is an anamorphology callout. So we'll <laughs> get ready, you two. Um, this is from AA again. Come on, guys. If Taylor's Yurk and Ava are they, Mr. Three should also be they. I get not wanting to work off of host gender, but masculine pronouns are just as gender as feminine ones. Every bit is appropriate or inappropriate. I see this all the time. The idea that it's solving gender just to get rid of she or her. Sure, archaically, he, him is gender neutral, but if you're questioning gender at all, shouldn't you also question the belief that masculine pronouns are the norm and the default? Yes. I don't think we were using masculine as the default. I think we were using host body gender as your gender, yeah. which we also shouldn't have done. I object to this call out a little bit because I think that was not that long ago that the comment was left, and we had already called out Esplin's, like, why he, him, like, I think that as early as, like, 23. I think the tendency, but though, is... You're right, yeah. that there might be more of a tendency. I think we're very inconsistent with all of it and tend to default to the host pronouns, as the series does, and I think that's, like, you know, that's not terrible. Yeah, I like, mean, we could look at data or whatever. I, I, I do think there's something... The reason that I thought that this was good to bring up was I think there's something to the idea that it's easier somehow to fall back on, like, you know, he's Visser 3, mm-hmm. and it's easier to be, like, to remember, oh, well, you know, when it comes to Ava and Edris, what does gender mean? Oh, like, yeah. it's this it's other totally kind of easy. thing. It's totally easy. I, like, regret a little being defensive because it's, it's, like, such a thing, like, that all of us, just from living in a society, specifically this one, definitely tend to view male as the default in a really, really bad way. Yeah, and we, we've been trying to use they for all of the yerks, but I think not doing it consistently. I also don't know that I've been trying that hard to use they for all the years. I don't know. I guess just because the books don't, I've I've sort of accepted that. But I could try harder in the time remaining to us to use they for all the years. We have three books left. We can do it. Yeah. It's also clear that the idea of Yerk gender is kind of a retcon. Like, it only comes mm. up in book 19 for the first time, right? With Aftran. Is that mm. when we get the, like, how Yerk's... Oh, May yeah, but we don't... Situation? Aftran doesn't touch on gender. It's just... It's reproduction, which doesn't involve, like, conspicuous absence of gender in a reproductive yeah, yeah. structure. Which does sort of lead to the question of, is there any gender? Do they just, like... these? This series seems to be pretty consistent about putting a given yerk only in female bodies or only in male bodies or, like, primarily in female or primarily in male bodies, which is kind of a cheat. Right. Yeah, an unexplored path for the series. Yeah, maybe something that people have explored in fanfic, or oh my God. maybe maybe people explore it in the fic that they write when we do our challenge, which we should talk about at some point in this survey. Is this you picking post-series <laughs> plans for our next topic? <laughs> I I feel like I should have full choice. Sure, yes. <laughs> no, it feels too early in the conversation for that, actually. All right. Well. Buckle up, listeners, for the rest of this, uh, <laughs> the next this, hour and this a half. This is a teaser. <laughs> when will you hear about our post-series plans, if ever? Who even knows? Who even knows? Maybe we'll just Gray get tired of next. talking. <laughs> what, what category? What category? Oh, okay. Let's see. I feel like we've been talking about a lot of really heavy stuff. Um, 
don't know. Let's, I can, I like every single category here. I'm like, oh yeah, that will have heavy material. That will have heavy material. How about Australia? How heavy <laughs> is the Australia section? I challenge you. There's plenty of like potential for heavy material in the Australia section. We got some great comments from Kit about uh, on book 44 and their knowledge about Australia things. Great. Um, so here's a couple of comments that I thought were interesting. Uh, so Kit says, I'm white, so don't accept my word as an authority on this. But a lot of stories and rituals that are not meant to be shared are things you are initiated into. There are hundreds of different tribes and languages in Australia, so obviously this varies. But a lot of people are totally fine with sharing a story about a creator spirit with an outsider or even that outsider passing the story on. But if you've been allowed to see a sacred ceremony, that doesn't give you the right to go gabbing about it. Did we see any sacred ceremonies? So maybe it's less relevant to the book. I don't know. Or like I, maybe maybe the rules that were brought up are less relevant to the book. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think the the nuance being the um, storytelling is a is like a way of cultural transmission in a way that like reporting your mm, first mm-hmm, person experiences mm-hmm. is maybe a little more invasive. Yeah. Um, I think that's the point Kit's making. But Kit, comment. So it's maybe a little less unrealistic that Yami would just tell Cassie this story about like their yeah spirits or yeah. Um, side note from Kit, no worries is a classic Australian saying that many of us have adopted. Did you know there's an even more casual version of the saying? Really? What is it? No wakas. No wakas? No wakas. No wakas. How does one spell that? One spells no wakas. No. W-U-C-K-A-S. I was gonna spell that very wrong. No wakas. No wakas. No wakas. Should I go around saying that? I think we can make no wakas happen. <laughs> so not too heavy. It's uh, it's back to you, Greg. Oh, okay, Unless wait, no. you want to talk about no wakas more. I do, because <laughs> according to Urban Dictionary, it's an abbreviation for the term no wakan foris, which is a spoonerism of the term f***ing <laughs> worries. That's amazing. That's real good. <laughs> I is this just I mean, one of those like fake things that like... <laughs> Listen, it's that is from Urban Dictionary, so very Did unclear whether really that's actually this. Did the person who wrote it sign off as Kit? <laughs> I'll ask my friend who lives in Australia. Yeah, I feel like it might be one of those things that like they tell outsiders to make them say stupid stuff. I don't know. I don't trust Do you- it. Okay, uh, is it my turn to pick now? Yeah. Yes. See if you can top Australia. Australia was real good, um, but I'm going to go with, because I'm so curious... Stuff Ted laughed at. (laughs) (laughs) I was putting this off because I think it's going to be really great. (laughs) Okay. Very excited. Um, Gray, what's Axe's favorite movie? The Aristocats. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I I already heard that, but I'm still laughing. It's great. (laughs) Okay, I love it. This Tell came from Apples of the Moon on Tumblr. Brilliant. Utterly brilliant. You know, I bet Fisher 3 loves that too. Cats <laughs> and Aris. <laughs> also an observation about the Elemist Chronicles from JWK. I'm honestly so surprised that no one mentioned the best pun in the entire book, considering that a not insignificant chunk of the world building props it up, and it happens at what feels like one of the most emotional parts of the book, when Tumen wins the game of music. Grey was close when she mentioned jazz, but like... I played of sadness, loneliness, tragic misunderstanding, and weary cynicism and defeat, 
And yet, though I played so much sadness, the music at the same time denied despair. But only a loser can sing the Azures. Oh, for f**k's sake. <laughs> Two Men is playing the blues. I hate that book. <laughs> <laughs> that book or that guy? <laughs> that guy. Both? Yeah. <laughs> That um, Azure's, that is so <laughs> dumb. The thing is, it went like it went totally over my head. Yeah, it went yeah. it went right it went right past me, and I, well, I, I feel mean, slightly ashamed about it. Particularly ironic that the Elemist would sing the blues since he is <laughs> <laughs> um, ideal. <laughs> I would like to read. So Gray, I'm very excited for you to one day be able to wade into the waters of Animorphs. Uh, fandom. Me too. But there is an incorrect Animorphs quotes Tumblr <gasps> that Rena shared in one of the comments. Ooh, and I'm gonna I just follow got a the kick, crap out of that. I just got a <laughs> kick out of out of reading through it. So I'm gonna go scroll through it now and read some to entertain y'all. Yes, please. Um, it will not be exhaustive, but I'll go until I find a, a few that I think are, are good. Awesome. Love it. A plus. Alright. Axe. There is no I in team, but there is one in pizza. Marco. So you're not going to share? Axe. I am not going to share. <laughs> Accurate. He probably he ate it all already. Um, There's no way for him to share at this point. Rachel. I love that takeout can mean food, dating, or murder. <laughs> Cassie. If you're a praying mantis, it can be all three at once. <laughs> and Rachel can't be a praying mantis. Oh, man. <laughs> Cassie. Why are people so obsessed with top or bottom? Honestly, I would be excited just to have a bunk bed. Marco says nothing. Rachel says nothing. Marco, I'm going to tell her. Rachel, don't you dare. Uh, Jake, what kind of tea is this? X. Oh, I boiled some Gatorade. <laughs> the Elemis. I've learned some very valuable lessons from this. Dying Animorph. I'm guessing they are all horrible distortions on the lessons you actually should have taken away. The Elemis. Death isn't real, and I'm basically God. There are Keep lots going. of... Keep going, one more. Okay, okay. <laughs> this one paints a whole, a whole picture. Jake while acquiring a skunk. Stinky. Cassie. No, don't be mean. Rachel, acquiring the same skunk. Stinky bastard man. Cassie. No! Marco, acquiring a different skunk. Naughty boy. Stank bank. Cassie, distraught. No! What is this from? <laughs> I have no idea. But I'm so curious. I, I love it's all the so animals. All the animals dissing on skunks and Cassie getting upset. Chapman. Marco, can I speak to you in private? Marco. Oh, someone's in trouble. <laughs> it's me. I don't know why I said that. <laughs> so, okay, we're canceling the rest of the podcast and we're just going to read this Tumblr. <laughs> For the rest of eternity. <laughs> Rachel, would you say that you're independent? X looks to Jake. Jake nods. X, yes, I would say so. <laughs> Perfect. Ideal. <laughs> Jake, hello? X, it's X. Jake, what did he do? X, no, it's actually me. Jake, what did you do? <laughs> I love this so much. Yeah, it's just so good. It's delightful. It's really, really good. Cassie, Rachel, you remind me of the ocean. Rachel, because I'm deep and mysterious. 
Cassie. No, because you're salty and you scare people. <laughs> yeah. Completely uh, accurate. All right, last one. Actual quote. Rachel says, excuse me, sir. That's my emotional support hawk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Are there was, more things that made you Are there more laugh? things we laughed at? Uh, those were the those were the things. I mean, I could keep reading from this song, but we're getting off. Maybe we're getting we can, off topic. Maybe we can do an encore later. <clears throat> okay. Um, let's talk about war crimes. You said that with such a pleased sound, and it was I weird. I did, didn't I? It was weird. That's all. Go on. <laughs> okay. So, do we know anything about the Geneva Convention? Ooh, we I talked about it know. in episode 43, yeah. and we we some commenters weighed in. I mean, I imagine that's one of those things. I should have put a category on here that's like, things Grey was wrong about. I mean, I know that it was, there's the like, humanitarian laws that came out of it. And I know that it was updated after World War II. Yeah, mm. so we have a couple of thoughts on this. So first from KS, the Animorphs cavalier attitude towards war crimes, um, KS would say, comes not so much from historical inaccuracy or, or misreading history, but it's that a major part of the story is teenagers who are not part of any form of military committing mm. war crimes. Um, it's not like they don't recognize what they're doing is wrong. They're just doing it because they think it's what they have to do to win. Um, there are six people facing an army, right? They're not really thinking about it that way. And they think that the Yerks are not abiding by the rules of war, etc., 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 um, Hugin pulls us in a slightly different direction by suggesting that the Geneva Convention shouldn't apply here because it's a human agreement. Like it's, it's, it's normatively, we've all agreed that these are lines mm. we do not cross. And yeah, so the Yerks haven't expecting the Yerks yeah. to, um, comparing the rules of warfare against the Yerks to something that's about something between humans is like, maybe it's morally valid, but like sort of contractually completely invalid. The... Other point that Hugin has that's that's uh, I wanted to call out was that because the Yerk method of invasion is by definition in violation of the Geneva Convention by infesting people and then using them as human shields, mm. um, there's kind of no way, like, even if you were the military trying to face them, your opponent has already done something that, mm -hmm. that breaks the rules. I'm not sure that allows you to circumvent yeah. the Geneva Convention, but it's a good point. I mean... I don't know, by by living in a country that signed them, are the are the Animorphs like somehow morally obligated to abide by them? Um, they aren't acting on behalf of that country. Like it's not like the Geneva Conventions are conventions are somehow like universally valid and binding. Like they are agreements between countries. Yeah, so you can say that what the Animorphs are doing are wrong, but you can't say necessarily like I don't, I don't know that you can say that they're bound by these specific conventions. The fascinating thing is that within a year, George Bush argued that Al-Qaeda, by breaking the Geneva Convention, meant that the U.S. didn't have to abide by it. Um, so the Animorphs are foreshadowing history by their willingness to do stuff like blow up the York Bull in 43. Oh, yeah. Like, that's an interesting question. Like, does, like, do the Geneva Conventions include clauses for, like, if one country violates these, like, there's probably, like, specific recourse. There probably isn't, like, it all goes out the window, but I don't know. I think, I mean, why do I even want to speculate? I don't, I'm not, I'm not educated about this at all. <laughs> Maybe someone will like, tell us. No, but, I, like, the wars between nations, I think, are what the Geneva Convention had in mind, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, so asymmetric warfare, like you see in the Animorphs or with like Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. um, it really is a different kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily mean that you should do bad stuff, but. <laughs> Okay, yeah. so what we're saying is don't perpetuate war crimes if you can help it. Yeah. Is that where we're going Yeah, I down? still, I'm going to wag my finger at the Animorphs for doing yeah. war crimes. I mean, it's the if you can help it thing, that, that's an interesting question. Like, what what does the cost to humanity have to be in order to justify blowing up a tub of Yerks or, like, killing a bunch of hosts? Well, or, like, blowing up, they were going to potentially well, create pool, a sinkhole yeah. under the Yerk pool. I mean, Axe was going to nuke the whole city, right? Like, Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, that plan seems bad. Yeah. I feel like they left themselves a little bit of an out with him being like, would I have gone through with it? But still, it was it was on the table. All right, so let's get the official <laughs> Council of Animorphology <laughs> decision on what. where's the line? What's the thing the Animorphs can't what? do in order to win? <laughs> I don't know. Why don't you help define the terms? Like, where would you put the, where would you put the line, Ted? Well, so, Gray, previously you said... If you use anything nuclear, that's too far. Yes. Is that it? As long as they don't use nuclear weapons, they can do whatever they want? No, I'm pretty sure the bar is lower than that. But, like, that's on the bad side. (laughs) If they could use a nuclear weapon, and by using the nuclear weapon, end the war? Well, so, okay, what if it was... What if Estrid comes back, and she's like, I fixed it. Kills all Yerks, and all their hosts, but not all of humanity. Oh. Oh, no. I mean, I still think it's a war crime. Not saying I wouldn't yeah, do it. Do you, do you think that the Animorphs should do it or should not do it? I think they should not do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's really tempting because you would be freeing all those people and that's good, but you'd be killing them and that sucks. And also, like, I don't know, um, biological weapons are a little, you know, to use a very, very mild word, squicky. Like, I feel like... I don't know. Even just killing well, all the Yerks is well. Yeah. So what if it was terrible? All, what if it was a step lower? All the Yerks that are not currently in hosts. Oh, that's like not killing the worst Yerks. That's like all the Yerks who aren't actively enslaving people get to die, and all the ones who are actively enslaving people get to live. That's terrible. Yeah, I don't like that. But like, also, if you feel like that's the like the alternative might be humanity being enslaved forever. These are two difficult choices, Ted. Yeah, I don't like it. It's a good thing the Animorphs won't have to face any of them in the coming books. (gasps) Thank you. Next category. (laughs) I'm suspicious. (laughs) Oh, man. Is it my turn? No, you you picked picked War Crimes crimes and then laughed. You monster. (laughs) I didn't pick doing War Crimes, to make it clear. Just talking about that. Okay, I pick Taxons. Okay, one of our one of our listeners loves taxons. Nice. This is JWK again. And actually a lot of people chimed in under their comments to be like, hey, taxons, let's have some more taxon thoughts. Um, so this is again... Can we have a podcast called Taxonomy? Yes, with okay. two X's. Great, yes. Everyone just imagine my pained face. <laughs> you didn't even make one. I know, it's cheating. We, we want to see it. We're deprived. It goes like this. <laughs> nice. Okay. <clears throat> Taxonomy. <laughs> um, so we talked about taxons and whether they are biologically evil in book 43. This is coming straight from Jay. All caps. Taxons. I love taxons a lot. I also feel like they're an inherently broken metaphor. 
Ooh, gauntlet throne. I love wow. this. I don't think it's too much of a leap to interpret the presentation of Yerk taxon relations as an attempt at explaining why a society with a permanent, prominent social slash medical issue might accept or even welcome the influence of another society that promises a solution to this problem. Mm. The issue again comes with equating the biological impulse of taxon hunger with a societal issue <laughs> because they really just aren't the same. I don't really have a solution to this. I just, it's always kind of bothered me. Fair. It does connect to some of the stuff we've said, I think, about like the potential for a yerk to be helpful in a case of addiction. Like, would people welcome a yerk into their head to like, you know, yeah. for therapeutic reasons in a case where it was like a voluntary and like term limited controllership hmm. infestation? Also from Jay, thoughts on taxon evolution. Taxons seeming to be poorly evolved honestly doesn't seem unrealistic to me. Evolution is bonkers. I present to you <laughs> the sunfish as exhibit A. Um, humans themselves have many, many terrible design flaws. See upright spines, knees, the menstrual cycle. Oh, Multiple nice. insects have mature forms where they literally have no mouths or way of eating, and they just have to mate and lay eggs until they die. Mm. Evolution doesn't plan for the long term. It just keeps going until the species in question has contorted itself into something that either breeds faster than it dies or shakes itself to pieces. Taxons are probably about as well evolved as anything else that lives. Kit chimes in on a similar subject. Behaviors that lead to death can be a survival strategy. For example, if they're linked to mating. Please Google Antichinas. Do you all know about Antichinas? No. Gray, go to it. Please Google Antichinas. It's A N T E. C-H-I-N-U-S. Aw, they're cute. They're really cute, but read about their mating habits. Oh, no. This article is called Antichinos Go Out With a Bang, which doesn't sound (laughs) good. It's exactly that. Great headline. (laughs) Sounds like something Rachel would appreciate. Males live for exactly 11 and a half months, dying from stress-induced immune system breakdown about two weeks after mating. Oh, they're just shy of their first birthday. That is so sad. All females... Oh my god. June. All females come into estrus at the time, triggering a mating frenzy among males. A fortnight later, every male is dead, overwhelmed by the stress-related corticosteroids produced during the frenzy of mating. So they f*** until they die. Yes. Yes. Okay. We're not done with taxons. Now that we've talked about evolution, AA chimes in with a uh, Animorphs head canon that the taxon homeworld used to be much wetter. Um, since taxons are good swimmers, uh, maybe there was an apocalyptic event that made it very dry. And maybe, you know, the, the oceans were full of nutrient-rich soil that they could just kind of eat up all the time. That makes and so much sense. This cataclysm is what led to their their horror state they live in now and siding with the years um aa cites a tumblr post um the taxon homeworld is like a post-apocalyptic version of lyra hmm. yeah i'm super into that someone else linked a uh fan's attempt at writing the taxon chronicles Ooh. it's like you know 45 chapters long on ao3 very intrigued to check it out mm-hmm. i'm very excited to read that that's it for taxons okay, okay. Actual 60 second summarizer. A lot happened in this book. This may be 60 seconds, so it just feels a little longer than most 60 seconds. Ooh, all, right, <laughs> all right, so the book starts. All the animals are hanging out in the gas station. They're going to do this mission to investigate this warehouse that the Yurks seem to have. They're planning to go in and then do people show up with like Marco and Rachel. And they're like, that's super weird. Uh, but it turns out it's not people who look like Marco and Rachel. They're holograms. And they are escort visiting from the escort homeworld. They are escort tourists led by Guy, who has now advanced in the um, Trader Guild or whatever his guild is called. And now he's called Mogul. And he has brought this group of uh, 56 other escorts to Earth because the Animorphs' memories are a huge hit. And these are all the like fans of the Animorphs' memories. So uh, the Animorphs are like, this is not cool. You know everything about us. And you look like us. And there are like multiple people who are identical in this gas 
station right now. Like, you need to know all about us. And you need to get out here. So they're leaving them out of there. But this warehouse that they're planning to investigate, they don't have to be like, showing up. This is three shows up in his limo. And they're like, the like, hey, this is cool. We can just get the escort out of here. There's no reason to suspect this group of people walking down the street. But then one of the escort, who is a racial fangirl, or fan guy, unclear of the gender of the escort involved, hears that Mr. Three is there. And he's like, oh, Mr. Three, I must attack him. Runs into the street. Morris, you can't see my air quotes, but they're there. Like, changes the hologram to be a bear and stands in the middle of the street, like, waving her paws at the, at the visor. Jake sends the escort out there with uh, Axe and Cassie, and uh, he and Marco make a morph and run out and try to, try to grab this escort, but the visor also morphs and, you know, the moon night, and they survive another day. Yay. The end. Uh, it's my turn to choose. Yeah. We're talking about some biology stuff. Let's do animal insight. I could have called this AA's Corner. <laughs> Yay, AA. All the animal facts. So first, A points out that it could make sense that Marco would have an easier time with a bee morph than other hive insects because forager bees are actually more independent. They go out to find food sources and return mm-hmm. to share the information. Ants work largely with scent when they do this. Hmm. Bees are more visual and would maybe have a more human-like interpretation of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Um, foraging bees make more have more executive function. They make more decisions. Cool. A also points out that a lot of animals can see into ultraviolet. And there's this fun fact. Some birds of prey can see the trails of urine rodents leave everywhere because <gasps> it's brightly colored in ultraviolet. How come we didn't get any of that in all their bird of prey morphs? I feel very deprived. They could have talked about brightly colored urine trails. Yeah, now I have questions. You know, which birds of prey? Which, why urine trails? Are they walking and urinating? Why? Yeah. Why? They're just constantly urinating. <laughs> I mean, I guess they're scared a lot of the time, but like, still, <laughs> control it. I don't know, rodents, do they urinate while they move? Is that like a normal thing? This is my question. Birds defecate while they move. Yeah, is, but birds I mean, can't easily stop because they're flying and they would fall. And they have a cloaca. Right. And also they can't control, I think, their elimination. But like... Elimination. A, That's the word I was looking for. But a rodent could just stop and pee. I don't but know. then it would get killed by Tobias. Oh my god. Well, no, because birds notice movement more than they notice like immobility. Apparently, they also notice ultraviolet urine. <laughs> AA would not lead us astray. Obviously not. She, she's you. just painting an ultraviolet urine trail leading us uh, to a place of nonsense. AA also had a great post uh, about episode 39 about anthropomorphization. Mm-hmm. Um, humans have a tendency to anthropomorphize, but also to deny the intelligence of animals because we don't understand their senses, their priorities, their abilities, and what they find important. There's a book by the primatologist Franz Duval, Are We Smart Enough to Understand How Smart Animals Are? That mm. goes into this and the intersection of both I ideas. I bet the answer is no. One example, people thought of gibbons as not being tool users because testing for that required them to pick sticks up off the ground, and gibbons have hook-like hands used for rapid moving through branches and low manual dexterity. They were anthropomorphized with the idea that they had human-like ability and then dismissed as less intelligent for their lack of it. Mm. There was a lot of furor about clever Hans, the counting horse, not actually being able to count and understand numbers, without a whole lot of interest in the fact that this was a horse that could watch someone with exquisite closeness reading and reacting to cues the person didn't realize they were giving. A recent example of this. Who would appreciate that ability? uh, Stella, have you guys heard about Stella the dog? This is a dog that's trained to push buttons that replay words. Who went viral recently? Yeah, Yeah. Um, so, uh, Slate has a good article that AA links about how, um, Stella is smart, does grasp associations between words and concepts, 
but probably Stella's owner is over-interpreting a level of understanding that is unlikely to be there. Mm-hmm. And then AA ties this back to our dear Buffy human. Cape buffalo aren't dogs, obviously, and haven't co-evolved for millennia to be interested in humans and understand us on various levels. But this is a zoo animal, so its personal experience has included humans. It probably understands tone of voice and has the ability to more or less grasp that certain sounds have specific meanings. Hmm. And here A paints an imaginary happy ending for the buffalo. Cassie traps it in some kind of dog morph, and the Chi keep the buffa dog in their underground park. She visits it often and has extremely basic conversations because with its dog brain, it learns a hundred or so words and uses thought speech to call her its friend. And this always cheers her up. Did good, Buffa Human. That's amazing. I love the Buffa Human now. Yeah. Well done. All right. Is it back to Gray choosing? Yes. Let's uh, let's keep this going and do a Science Corner. Woo! Science Corner. We um, need a Science Corner jingle. Apples of the science okay. Corner. Jenny. Yes. Please present us with a Science Corner jingle. Science Corner. How's that? I feel like it needs like a a sting at the end. Science Corner. Yeah. Perfect. Like that? Okay. that was great. great. That was that was perfect. <laughs> um, let's edit it back into all of our old episodes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Andalites absolutely do not have nipples. Discuss. There is no reason. <laughs> Gray to just think. spit out her drink and fell off the chair. <laughs> there is no reason they could not have nipples. I'm not going to argue that they do have nipples, but baby Andalites. Have to drink in some way, or have to like get nutrients in some way. They could fasten onto some sort of appendage on the parent, and that appendage could resemble Why would a nipple. They have nipples they eat through their homes. <laughs> okay, then how do you think baby Andalites, who like probably don't have the digestive capacity to eat grass, get their nutrients? Gray from mother grass that grows on the chest of the female Andalite. Oh my god, that's brilliant. I love that! Whoa, wait. So, <laughs> so, the baby so they basically eat their parents' nipples, is what you're saying. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, so, being unsweet is a real problem if you are if you have young kids. Oh my gosh. Well, female Andalites are apparently not really allowed they in the military. They so. grass on their chest. Do males what also grow grass on their chest? Yes. Okay. But it's it's flavorless <laughs> and nutrient poor. <laughs> so you're saying that <laughs> this is the tan fur that develops later. It's the nutrient rich mother grass. Mother grass. So so uh, andalites with children, or possibly female andalites, will have more tan fur. Right. Except until except right after they've had a kid, the the, the kid will eat all the fur. Right. So. <laughs> Now, is it just on their chest, or do they, like, balance the baby on their back and have them prance around and eat the, <laughs> eat the grass on their back? Well, you know, you have to you have to be able to graze and grow. In, <laughs> like, if you ate it all, then the baby baby would starve. So there need to be different patches. So you have to, like, let some patches so you can... of you lie fallow. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So if you... This is also part of why you're not you're not supposed to have too many children as an Andalite, because it could be oh, medically risky. Oh, yeah. Okay. They probably have developed some sort of child formula where they, like, have fake patches of mother grass. <laughs> you know how like, you, get, you, know how you get that, like, fake fur for, like, cats to sit on in, like, an uh, apartment yeah, in New yeah, York? Yeah. 
Yeah, sure. it's like you have that for like <laughs> for baby andalites. You get some little like sod. Okay, so synthetic do you sod. Think that uh, andalites in their sexual practice nibble each other's chest grass. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah. Is it sensitive? Well, but it's 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 embarrassing if you go out, mm, you know, like the morning after when you gallop away, right? Oh, you've no, got big patches missing. Oh man, that is embarrassing. Wow. Gray <laughs> <laughs> is done. She's done for. Like she's not what coming back here. What are you talking about? <laughs> We're talking about real scientific observations. Great, <laughs> Andalite. This is Science Corner. You heard the jingle. <laughs> Fur, it's not Science grass. corner. <laughs> I don't understand. <laughs> okay, I, I think... can't wait for Axe and Marco to get together and Marco to get to nibble on Axe's <laughs> chest grass. Is the rest of Andalite fur edible? No. Okay, all right. Just the tan stuff. Just the grass. Like Just Gray grass. said, fur isn't grass. Right, right, right. Obviously. <laughs> All right, I'm going to sober us up with <laughs> some very dry science. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we had someone write in on Tumblr, beta pleated shits. Hi, I'm a fourth year PhD student in biomedical engineering. I love listening to anamorphology while I'm working in the lab. Um, I'm in a class on science policy in the U.S. this semester. We're researching recommendations on harmful or maliciously applied biotech research. So it was funny to hear a recap of 38. The quantum virus reminded me a bit of gene drive technology which is being explored for population control of pest animals. So I did about two seconds of Wikipedia research into (laughs) gene drive technology, and I'm going to read to you about it. A gene drive is a genetic engineering technology that propagates a particular suite of genes throughout a population Hmm. by altering the probability that a specific allele will be transmitted to offspring from the natural 50% probability. Hmm. So it's basically a way to make sure that the genes that you want to be inherited are inherited. You can spread that throughout a population and they use it in like insect populations to try and select against mosquitoes that carry malaria and things like that. Okay. Um, I'm curious. I would love for us all to speculate about this very serious and not at all funny science Mm -hmm. um, and how it might be related to a quantum virus. Do you think that Andalites can alter their own biology to produce more chest grass? (laughs) Great. You're editing this. I know you can cut that out. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna ignore her. Oh my god. Yeah, no, I think this is really relevant yeah. to what we were talking about with um But like it would be true. interesting, Yerk reproduction is faster, is pretty quick, maybe. Ooh, we don't really know maybe. how often those things happen. But But if there are only three Yerks who then give rise to hundreds, then it would be Oh, targeting those three easy to selectively breed. Like we don't know how Yerks choose what three? That is so fascinating. They could practice some sort of like eugenics on themselves. That's so fascinating. They could with get such, more seer years. But with, with such like a restrictive, thumbs. like maladaptive uh, mutations in mm-hmm. Yerk DNA oh, would be yeah. so destructive. That's true. I wonder, I mean, maybe the, like, I don't know. I mean, maybe evolution sort of balances that out by like, you know, if, if a maladaptive gene gets into one of those spawning groups maybe they all die out or maybe the there's some like very strong selection for the ones who will produce good yerks i don't know it works for them i'm babbling they clearly have survived i don't know would with fewer of the yerks actually reproducing would 
would evolution let them change faster or slower? That's an interesting. I don't really know how the math would work on that. Right. Although it doesn't sound like maybe, I mean, maybe your population is booming. Maybe that's why they're being so expansionist. But I would guess based on the like very limited pools that they've had on their home world for almost all of their evolutionary history, that the population doesn't actually expand that much. Like most yurks do not reproduce would be my guess. So if you have, you know, three only produce another three, then actually it sounds like what you'd have would like would be a drastic population reduction, which might be good because then, you know, fewer yurks to control people. But that's like if the yurks are choosing them for the, that for themselves, that's very different than if like another species is choosing it for them. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're eager to get back to Science Corner. Yes, I am. Would you like to hear Hugin's essay about how Z-Space actually works? No. Thank you. I'm sure you do. The way Z-Space <laughs> works is that there's a parallel universe where... Let me put it this way. A sheet of paper is two-dimensional. Crumple it into a ball. It's now three dimensions. But travel from a point anywhere on the sheet is significantly shorter than it was. This is just the wrinkle in time thing. Because the absolute distance is much shorter. An 8-inch by 11-inch sheet becomes a 2-inch by 2-inch by 2-inch ball. Max travel distance equals 2 inches. Z-space is our three-dimensional universe crumpled up into some arbitrary number of dimensions, which is why anything unshielded that exists there is all broken up. This also turns anything that can access Z-space into an easy perpetual motion machine, providing infinite energy basically instantly, which explains why the Helmicrons assume the blue box is a battery. A Z-space rift is when there is a crease or similar, meaning there is no direct route to a certain part of the sheet. Your thoughts? I love it. I hate it. You know what this doesn't Wait. explain? Why it takes so much energy for the Andalites to move a ship into Z-Space. Yes. Also, what the hell the blue box has to do with Z-Space. I mean, I guess your mask goes to Z-Space, but it's not a Z-Space yeah. engine. So the idea of it, it does as a connect to Z-Space. battery doesn't make any sense because it doesn't have anything to do with Z-Space travel. Also, I understand the concept of turning something two-dimensional into three-dimensional. That's not the problem I have with Z-Space. Thank you for that explanation. This, to be fair, Hugin's comment was not directed at you, Gray. It was, I, I'm just weaponizing it against you. <laughs> it was directed at Marco's dad. Yeah. Ah, um, right. uh, but are you ready to hear about K-Space? So no. Piscean Provoker chimes in with a comment on the Elmist Chronicles, talking about the Kardashev scale. Are you all familiar with this term? I'm, I was familiar with the concept, but Kardashev scale did not ring a bell. So cryic peering out of nowhere could be explained by the Kardashev scale, which is a scale that describes an entity's ability to harness energy at different scales, which uh, correlates to that entity's level of technological advancement. Um, so like planetary energy, solar system energy, galactic energy, um, universal energy... Z-space energy, you know, whatever. Um, so it, this theory is is part of a uh, potential explanation for why we haven't been contacted by aliens, right? We're sort of like too dumb. We're too low on the Kardashev scale to know mm -hmm. for aliens to bother contacting us. It would be like humans trying to explain to ants that the ant exists and what that means, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Sure. Um, so the idea is that the Elemist once, you know... He's reached a threshold, one-tenth, one-one-hundredth of Cryak's power. Cryak shows up and is be like, hey, and then it's time, you know, to, to play ball. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wouldn't be worth interacting with him earlier. And that's kind of like 
why he comes out of nowhere. Okay, but that doesn't explain why, narratively, we don't find out anything about Crag's history. Yes, I agree that it doesn't clear up any of the narrative stuff. That's a great point. But Piscine Provoker leaves us with one more provocation, which is, nice. what if there's something sitting there in K-space, looking at Elmist and Cryak, and thinking, how do I explain to them that they even exist? What if that thing is us? <sighs> I think we would know if it was us, I have to say. Though I guess we are looking at the book. So you could say that all of Animorphs is flattened into a different dimension, smaller than our dimension, because it fits into these books. So... This might have been less science corner and me slowly driving gray crazy corner. Lacking metaphysics corner. <clears throat> there is one more bit where JWK, who who also says that um, there are Oswald privileges on Tumblr, and AA talk a little bit more about Andalite speech. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to mm-hmm. share some of their observations there. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jay is saying, I can't imagine how collections of representative syllables like the word arist would naturally evolve as a means of communication between species that cannot enunciate verbally. Written communication makes more sense, but I doubt it would have an alphabet in the way we th- we think about it. I'm not a linguist, though. I'm curious what other people think. Mm-hmm. AA chimes in, also not a linguist, but here's some ideas. Right, Letters don't have to stand for um, syllables, right? There are many kinds of human writing systems. So in English, we have symbols and sounds inherently tied together. But uh, Chinese, for example, is logographic, where a symbol represents a word or a phrase, but doesn't have anything to do with how it's pronounced. It has something to do with how it's pronounced. I've gotten a lot of... Would you like to of, clarify? I've gotten a lot of... Um, my my roommate is learning to read Chinese, or at this point can read Chinese. And um, apparently the idea that the picture is completely disconnected from the sound is actually pretty inaccurate. Like she's saying that you can see a lot of the... there A lot of characters have common roots. And so from looking at a character, you can't necessarily guess exactly how it's pronounced, but you can get pretty far. You're like, oh, it probably contains this sound. Mm. And maybe you don't know the exact, you know, maybe you get the wrong initial consonant or something. But, but is it's that... a little more complicated than just, it's not just like this image is arbitrarily assigned to this sound and there's no way to guess. But is that equivalent to how in English phonemes can be pronounced tons of different ways and that like it's more exceptions than rules? Or is it more so than that? I think it's it's I think it's less connected than that, yeah. but I, I don't read almost any Chinese myself, so I would yeah. not be a good source for that. Fascinating. If yeah. you are a linguist and want to come on the podcast and talk to us about <laughs> Andalite, what's the word for fake languages? Um word Conlang? Word. Is that is that what it's called? Sounds right. We get almost none of it. We get like a handful of words. Constructed language. Mm. Yeah. If if there's a linguist who wants to come on and talk about Andalite Conlang, that would be an awesome episode to do. So here's, here's more of A's theory about how Andalite language works. The way I figure it is that an Andalite's first language is hand sign, and that most of them think that way, with some visual language and loan words from Gallard or whatever thrown in. When they're talking to someone whose language they don't know, a lot of best fit goes on, like how prince clearly doesn't mean royalty but may have some similar connotations. Sometimes there isn't as easy a fit. The Andalite and the other person don't have enough common ground, and then the other person fills in with a mash of syllables from their own language which has the same rhythm and cadence as the signed word. If Axe was telling the Animorphs, and a landscaper, the word for the way the lake curves framed by the trees, the kids hear Enos Ermarf, as they did in book four, but the landscaper might hear some landscaping terminology. So wait, before you go on, does that mean we should assume that any word we hear that's like Andalite and not translated 
is because it doesn't have a direct equivalent in English. So like, what the heck does a wrist mean? Like, what is the connotation right. of a wrist that is so why do we specific? Get, why do we get a wrist and not prince? Right. That's and we get warrior. There's like, so a wrist must have some like very specific thing. Well, it's beyond our understanding. I know. We just we don't know. Yeah. We don't know enough about military ranks, etc. As an Andalite becomes more familiar with the languages of the people around them, their thought speech takes on a new texture. Acts from book four, talking to a range of people with different languages, would be heard as saying a wrist by English speakers and something else by someone who thought in another tongue. But by now, I think he's heard a wrist said back to him and knows what that word means, so that sound would be transmitted. When they ship off the homeworld, they choose a sound name with the same cadence as their actual names so that they can give this to aliens that communicate verbally and avoid having five different people call them by five different names. The reason why most Andalite names seem to start with A is that it's the first phoneme on the list provided, and they know it's the same used for their species. This doesn't explain how many Yerkish words are made into a form we can grasp as comprehensible syllables. They do ultrasonic squeaks that can be pitched way down and slowed. That's all I got. So... I, the hand sign thing is interesting. We don't really see Axe do any hand signs. We do, I think, when Elfingor is on the bridge, or maybe when Axe is on the bridge of the ship um, at at the beginning, like in his flashback in his first book. Like, I think that the warriors on the bridge are using hand sign because the thought speak link, like, frequencies get too crowded or something. So they evidently have something like that. But I'm wondering about, like, their rituals, which seem to involve a few physical gestures. I don't remember a lot of hand signs. I, I remember that him like stepping into the stream and like there's one where he has to like turn his eyes up. And, Axe like, kneels to the governor. Oh yeah, it's true. So I can see like some body language stuff. Um, the, I'm surprised if hand sign is like, which we do know from Elemis Chronicle, that hand sign is like ancestral to their species. Like I'm surprised there aren't more hand signs incorporated into these really powerful rituals. The thing that's fascinating to, to me about it, that's a loose thread, is like Elfingor is introduced with a lot of the, like, he gives Tobias like a dump of images. Mm-hmm. He he projects kind of feelings to them. Visser 3 uses Thought Speak to create a dread aura. Yeah. Um, and like, I'm but sorry like, you have to live with that, by the way, Gray. It's really you know, tough. Part of cat ownership. Yeah. Axe never really makes use of that ability. Um, so it's kind of unexplored in canon, but I do like, like, I could imagine a similar argument that AA is making here, but it doesn't even have to be gestural. It could be purely like visual thought, thought visual Mm -hmm. communication. I like the idea that the sort of transmission of emotions and ideas and sort of the, the brain dump that Elfingor did to Tobias and that Elfingor did to Tobias with the like the memories that he could only access on the point of death. I like the idea that that's something you can train in and learn. And, like the thing where Elfingor says in Andalite Chronicles, I'm not a mystic. And like, oh, I yeah. think maybe he became a mystic in addition to being a warrior. Like, I think maybe he developed those skills and maybe Alaran had some of those skills because he was like pretty seasoned and maybe it had to like maybe delved into some stuff to like help him deal with the um the harsh treatment he got after the you know the guilt and the way uh, the rest of the military structure ostracized him after after that incident like maybe he got some mystical abilities so Axe just hasn't been trained in any of that at all and so we don't we don't see any of that with him who's next uh Jenny Oh, it's me. Okay, so Science Corner and Animal Insights are done. 
I'm gonna save some of the ending stuff for a little later. Let's talk about, let's talk about disability. Uh, this is actually a comment from Megamorphs 4. A points out that um, Axe in Megamorphs 4 is put into an asylum or a psych ward. Mm -hmm. um, that's where we meet him and they're kind of like hijinks and it's fairly lightly treated. Yeah. But taking it taking it as read, um, it's interesting that Axe, from his perspective in Megamorphs 4, does not have any particular aversion to the mentally ill. Uh, mm. His thoughts about Veckles seem to be very targeted at physical disabilities, which is obviously an unintentional nuance, but like it would be an interesting yeah. way to read into Andalite culture. It does kind of make me wonder how Andalite culture treats mental illness. I, I seriously doubt from what we know of Andalite culture that it is very generously or, you know, treat, it's not treated with great acceptance, I would assume. But think but. about this. I really liked this insight from AA. Um, if you have that kind of inconsistency, maybe it's not that strange. Um, you know, like, if the Andalites are like Americans, if you look at all, our culture, um, myopia is basically accepted and assistive devices for it are mm. almost unremarkable to the point where we don't think of it as any form of disability, though unassisted myopia can easily be severe enough to impede day-to-day -day functioning. Yeah. There are absolutely still various tropes and expectations around corrective lenses, but glasses are incredibly normalized. We handle nearsightedness and farsightedness in a way we seriously don't, other forms of vision impairment, and consider the, quote, cure eye surgery with healthy caution. Children with glasses aren't considered to be faking it or particularly pitied. Mm -hmm. Contacts are encouraged, but there also tends to be understanding about not being willing to use them over glasses. That's fascinating. I could I could see that just being a legitimate inconsistency in Andalite culture. I also wonder if it's a thing where, like, Axe views Andalites as so superior to humans anyway that, you know, he lands on the planet. He's like, oh, these wacky humans are, like, a little wackier than the other humans. Like, he's not necessarily... They'll be like, ah, these are defective examples of these excellent humans. Like, he's he's just, like, kind oh. of treating everyone as, like, so that's, inferior. Anyway. No, but that actually totally makes sense. Because if you... Axe's arc is about how he assimilates into human society. And oh, it, like, yeah, becomes yeah. more and more... He just becomes more and more genuinely human as the series goes on, at least so far. Mm -hmm. So it would totally make sense that not having assimilated at all, he, he kind of bounces off people. But that... Once he knows how the Animorphs would, and mm. like TV would mm. talk about people with disabilities, he's much more likely to be like, oh, I can make an analogy back to Vekals. He and, has the context right, to disdain right. them. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I buy that. Is there more under disability? That was it. Oh, okay. Great. I mean, I just, I don't know. We haven't talked about ableism much on the podcast yet, so, you know. <laughs> Not true. Tune into episode 50. <laughs> oh my gosh, I know. I edited it. It was like a whole hour of it. Are you amused by the many interesting uses for human mouths? Have you already explored such pleasurable experiences as kissing and making raspberries and wondering what else is out there? Try chocolate. Make use of the fundamental human mouth sensation of taste and experience the wonderful sugary goodness of the colorful pellets known as M&Ms and the liquid known as chocolate fountains. Chocolate. More pleasant than kissing. Um, Alright, well in that case, let's uh, let's do reflection. Reflection! Alright, so uh, we got an email from Aaron S. With a, uh, this, is, this is kind of, we can take a step back and reflect about some, some things in the series. So, 
first a question for Gray. Um, first, Aaron says, your reader reactions, your first time reader reactions to each individual Animorphs book are wonderful. Aww. Now that you're 40 plus books in, 50 plus books <gasps> in now, yeah. if you step back, what are your thoughts on the series as a whole so far? Too big of a question, but would middle grade Gray have enjoyed these books? Would you recommend them to middle grade readers today? And do you find them a worthwhile read as an adult today outside of reading them for the podcast? Finally, if the podcast stopped today, would you finish the series? <laughs> oh, God, yes. Um, that, the last one's the easiest to answer. I really want to find out what happens. Oh, yeah. I'm actually very curious. Yeah, I think um, Middle Grade Grey had a very good sense of what worked for her and these books didn't and wouldn't. Mm. Um, middle Grade Grey, like Grown Up Grey, doesn't like it when bad things happen, <laughs> especially to children. Um, mm. Especially to children she likes. So, middle grade Grey would not appreciate them. I do think they are wonderful books, and I would recommend them to other middle grade readers, and have um, in the Yay. in the time since we've started. Um, one of my favorite side hobbies is readers' recommendation, um, readers' advisory, and so I have taken advantage of that to force small children to read um, the Animorphs. Yeah, force them all. Yeah, I will say I think. I'm I'm so glad that we did this series, and I truly do love these books to the extent that I wish that I had the same kind of emotional connection to them that you mm. guys do, because part of reading them as an adult is noticing more of the flaws than yeah. are strictly necessary for me to notice. Like, they are great books, and the fact that I nitpick these stupid things every week. Mm -hmm. I feel bad about it sometimes. Because I'm like, these are great. I love them. I love the author. I'm really happy they're doing this. Some of my nitpicks are just me being an obnoxious 30-something <laughs> reading these books for the first time. And that feels unfair in a lot of ways because that's not the metric by which they should be judged. They should be judged by the joy they bring their primary readers. And I think they achieve that goal incredibly well. And frankly, I'm looking forward to rereading them and to diving oh, into the yeah. fandom and to reading some of the fanfic and following, you know, incorrect quotes on Tumblr and that kind of thing, because <laughs> they are such a genuinely great series of books that seems to have, from my limited understanding, really created a wonderful community of people who love them. So I'm just, I'm so heartwarmed to hear that, if you can use it, the word that way. I just, I remember a year and a half ago when Ted and I decided, we're like, let's start a podcast. It was Ted's suggestion. He gets the credit. And and I asked you to be on it. And like, you had no idea what you're getting into. And we were like, what if she hates them? And just like being this far into the series and hearing how wonderful you think they are, even, you know, if there are many flaws, like it's, it's just really great. I'm so glad this is, this is how it turned out. Yeah, me too. I mean, I hate some of them. And I hate specific aspects of them. I also hate some of them. And I feel a little bit of your, like, there are some books that I don't have nostalgia for, and it will get to this, but, like, ranking the books was weird because, like, 45, such a good book. I don't remember it at all. And so it's hard for me to weigh, like, the incredibly strong feelings I have about some of the earlier books, even if they're not as strong, really, objectively, to whatever mm -hmm. extent you can get an objective reading of them. Like, it's it's really hard to compare those things. It's just so different having the, the strong attachment. Yeah. 
Ted, any other thoughts from your perspective? I'll, I'll second what Jenny said. I'm happy that we didn't sign you up for something. <laughs> totally dreadful. I've been super happy because I reread the books more recently than Jenny, for sure. Mm-hmm. And knew that I had a lot of nostalgia for them. But I was, I've been really pleasantly surprised by the depth that we can mine out of them. Yeah, the richness. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like a really good, it's been a really worthwhile project. Yeah. And, and, and like when we get to the rankings, I'll talk about this more. But the, like the one example is 43 is a book that I have no special attachment to. But like after the podcast episode we did about it, it probably like jumped up my ranking five or 10 places just because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I have so, there's so much more that I can appreciate about this. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so on a reread, I might be like, no, the annoying stuff still annoys me. But like the podcast has like really deepened my relationship to some of the books. Mm-hmm. I also feel like some of the stuff we've had recently has made me appreciate so much more the first half, two thirds of the series, because recently we have gotten to places where we're like, ugh, we could evaluate this based on what it was trying to do or on what it actually did, but like it clearly failed. And we just didn't have that much of that in the first two thirds of the series. And that's kind of amazing for a series of middle grade books that came out every month that they were so strong so consistently yeah. for so long. That's a really yeah. good point. I mean, especially when, you know, especially the Apple Grant books. Oh, yeah. Are yeah. Really impressive and churning one of those great books out once a month is every just month. like good heavens. I do not know how they did that and it's it's really great. And and a lot of the complaints that we seem to have had in the later part of the series are very much built on the fact that we're comparing them to the first 10 or 19 books. We have such a high standard. You know, yeah, they're not as, like, I have a lot more books in my bottom two quartiles than I did in the first half. And that's just because, you know, having that strong of a foundation makes it real difficult to write 54 books at the same level. More to say about that? Ready for more reflection? More reflection! So, um, this is a question for all of us, also from Aaron S. Uh, For each of you, what are other science fiction books, movies, or short stories that have been touchstones for you? Uh, Someone else asked us if we're Doctor Who fans, which we could touch on. Um, Maybe the same answer or not. Are there books written for an adult audience that share similar themes to Animorphs? And you would recommend to someone who loved the Animorphs as a kid? Oh, what a great question. Oh, it's such a good question. Which part should we tackle first? Whatever you guys think of. <laughs> so I've been thinking, oh, this is getting a little bit into like post-series plans, but it would be really fun to tackle other works that cover similar thematic ground. Mm, yeah. If we had, you know, a list of four or five of them. As yeah. kind of like casual one-off episodes. Animorphology reads. And I know you haven't seen this, but Gray, have you seen the movie Starship Troopers? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good movie about about child soldiers, basically. Yeah. Child soldiers, um, yeah. And so it would be, I think, it, an interesting study in contrasts with yeah. a series like this. Yeah, that would be like very this. fun. Okay. So let's, uh, let's talk about these. Let's reflect. Yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, there are a lot of, I think I probably have more affinity for, for fantasy or I've had more more things that I love that have been fantasy. Like, you know, a lot of the big ones, um, Tolkien, 
Chronicles of Narnia, Harry Potter. Love the the Sabriel trilogy is great. Is this other books that spoke to you yeah. on the same level as I because uh, there were like yeah. three questions, right? Yeah. What are other science fiction books, movies, or short stories that have been touchstones for you? Great. Okay. Start with that one. Yeah. I touchstones is a great phrase. I'm like, what qualifies? How long a list should I give? <laughs> and at what ages? Like, is it yeah, specific yeah. to at the age when you guys were reading the Animorphs, or is it kind of that's actually now? that's a that's a nice way to narrow it. Like, what else was important to me at the time? Well, it yeah. So for me. My history was like probably when I got into the Animorphs, I was very much like a Star Wars kid. Mm-hmm. I was reading those like I forget his Kevin J. Anderson, I think, um, yep. like all of his Star Wars books and Timothy like Zahn. yeah, exactly Jedi Academy, like all of these all of these different things. Yeah. I really got deep into Star Wars stuff. Um, the the Bruce Coville series I was really into at that time, and that was like a phase for me. And then at some point I got into like Dragonlance and like David mm-hmm. Eddings and mm-hmm. other kind of like generic fantasy stuff, which culminated when I was like, I don't know, 13 or 14 in getting into the Game of Thrones series, which mm-hmm. completely ruined fantasy for me in a good way. It was like, <laughs> oh, okay. yeah, just like breaking all the genre conventions. And then after reading A Storm of Swords, I couldn't go back to David Eddings, right? Like it was, yeah. I, I'd crossed that bridge. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, like... I didn't then get into like sci-fi as a thing until I was more of an adult. So there really isn't like Animorphs, I think is really unique in my history as kind of like this, like goofy sci-fi thing. I don't know. Cause it's very, Animorphs is very different from Star Wars in terms of the, like Star Wars is an epic and Animorphs is kind of like about normal kids. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't make much of a distinction between sci-fi and fantasy when I was a kid. I remember realizing at some point in late elementary school, like, oh, a lot of the books that I love, it's like they go to different worlds and stuff. And now looking back, I'm like, yeah, I liked fantasy. Like, <laughs> That's not an earth-shattering observation. Um, so there was a lot of fantasy I loved as a kid. I guess, I mean, like the the Madeline Lengel books are sci-fi and those were among mm-hmm. my favorites. The year before I was obsessed with Animorphs, I was obsessed with the Chronicles of Prudane, which I've never been sure how oh. to pronounce, but the Lloyd Alexander oh, yeah. books. Yeah. Lloyd Alexander. Yeah, those five books I just read over and over and mm. over. And I was like, I was like 12 and like obsessed with that romance because it was like so subtly done and I was like this is the perfect degree of romance for me and and after Animorphs I mean that was when Harry Potter was getting big I became obsessed with this book called Sophie's World which is like a uh, like a girl starts getting letters from a philosopher and like it goes through the entire history of philosophy and then they figure out that their characters in a novel and they like break out and it's it's really cool and like that those were like the things that I was reading at the time yeah. since then there have been many other things someone asked about Doctor Who yeah I loved the first five or six seasons of the reboot and then got a little disillusioned with Stephen Moffat but like the ways that uh, the best Stephen Moffat episodes are like my favorite episodes, though. Blink and Silence in the Library, those ones, like all of season five, super good. How about you, Gray? It's a good question. So if we're talking about middle grade, you know, I also didn't didn't make a strong distinction between fantasy and sci-fi, and I probably also read a lot more fantasy than science fiction. Um, I loved Madeline Langall. I loved Redwall. Middle grade was probably a little before my Tamara Pierce. Um, obsession. 
I mean, I read Animorphs like ages 13 through 15, so you know. Well, as well you should. Um, <laughs> That's when they were coming out, you know? Any of us would have read Animorphs earlier if we could have. <laughs> well, exactly. I don't know. Would you have read it earlier than you did, though? You were like eight. I'm sure that I would have read it if I was six. You might have been traumatized. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a book that I want us to read together at some point. Mm-hmm. Because I think I mentioned this when we first started talking about it, um, about Animorphs. It's called Stinker from Space. <laughs> <gasps> what? That's amazing! Yeah. Can I read the description here? Please read the description. An agent of the Cylon Confederacy who is fleeing from enemy ships, crash lands on Earth, transfers his mind to the body of a skunk, and enlists the aid of two children in getting back to his own planet. <laughs> this is Cylon with an S. Yeah, it's not Cylon like Battlestar Galactica. No, no, don't worry. There's, there's no copying here. Um, <laughs> Cylon with an S. Um, so I, I, there were a lot of like one-off books like that that I really loved. Some of the Bruce Colville stuff. Um, I read pretty... Well, I started volunteering in my local library when I was 10 and started working mm-hmm. there when I was 15 and then got a library degree as soon as I got out of undergrad. So, you know trajectory. Um, But it means that, you know, one of my jobs as a volunteer was reshelving. And so I would just, I'd be putting books on the shelves and I would like stop in the middle of the aisle and read until someone came and yelled at me because I had a cart full of books I was supposed to put away. Um, I cannot be trusted with reshelving. It's very, very bad. So I think there were a bunch of books like Stinker in Space that like who has ever heard of this book? But like, mm-hmm. I picked it up because someone else had checked it out or because it was on a reading list. There are tons of books like that. that I feel like I have a lot of books like that too. Yeah. yeah. Like weird one-offs. Yeah. Um, it would be fun to read some of those, especially ones that have elements that remind us of, of Animorphs. Yeah. What about the adult fiction that um, has similar feels themes. similar? I have ideas about this. Yeah. Okay. So I want to divide this into three categories. This is what I've been oh thinking about for Amazing. doing reader's advisory for Animorphs readers who are adults now. Uh-huh. Yes. And so th- these are my three categories. Um, the first one is heist books. Ooh. The second category is found family. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the third category is war is hell. <laughs> nice. I feel like it's worth mentioning. Like, So Animorphs undeniably has a huge war is hell thread through it. But I'm wondering what other books and other pieces of media are out there that treat war the way Animorphs does with this mix of extreme seriousness and extreme lightheartedness and like mm-hmm. warmth and upliftingness blended all blended together. And like, yeah, we've mentioned Buffy so many times on this podcast, but anyone who hasn't watched Buffy and loves Animorphs, like, I mean, like 99% guarantee you're going to love Buffy. First season's a little bit rough going, but like it's it's that mix of like the grind of fighting and fighting and fighting and it's all resting on you and it's like terrible and it's wearing you down mixed with this sort of brightness and found family and like it's really like the best yeah. comparison I can so think of. Buffy is also serialized, which I mm, think is an, an interesting yeah. thing That's a really to note when it comes to like comparisons because really uh-huh. the kind of serial stuff that an- like Animorphs was produced at a time when it made sense to have these long running 
book series for middle grade readers with small installments, and that mm-hmm. doesn't really exist anymore. But it right? exists in TV, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. In, in TV, even Buffy was still... Somewhat. Buffy is Buffy still was an older was innovating yeah. series arcs when TV was episodic, whereas yeah. now you're like, you know, 40-hour movie is kind of like <laughs> the gold standard <laughs> yeah, yeah. for TV, and that's actually I feel perhaps like we've lost less... something. Yeah. yeah, it's less powerful... And less I mean, able to great, have that kind of like tonal. It's a shame we can't have both. Yeah. yeah. That's probably why you get tonal variation. The way you do in Animorphs books. Some of the books are silly, yeah, but they're yeah, cohesive yeah. installments. If we're going to include TV, I think Avatar The Last Airbender. Ooh, yeah. Really That's on Ted's yeah. list. Or my list for Ted. <laughs> oh my God, it's so good, Ted. You're going to love it so much. It is. I'm very excited. It is for serious one of the best television shows I think that has ever been created. I adore it. But Avatar has that same like found family. Avatar the last podcaster. Seriousness of war, but also it's just very silly sometimes. Also, there's a lot of funny animal, not morphs, but like crossovers. My recommendation that checks all of those boxes that you mentioned, Gray, is something that I've talked about on the podcast before. And it's something that was recommended to me by our two-time guest host, Claire. The web serial mm. worm, which, which is you can written right text text it's, serial. It's text. Yeah, yeah, you can you can read it online. It is way too long. It's like one point six million words long. <laughs> so I recommend this up front if you are the kind of person who gets invested in something really big and long. Be prepared to lose weeks of your life. <laughs> I just, I'm sorry for telling you about it, but I'll I'll give you my spiel and why I think it connects to animorphs. So what were the, your three categories, Gray? My three categories were heists, found families, and war is hell. Yes. So the premise of Worm is it's a um, like a parallel universe Earth where people have started developing superpowers. And so it's a superhero story. But the main theme, there are kind of like two main themes. One is that superpowers like start getting introduced to the world in like the 80s or something. And now it's maybe like you know, the the mid-2000s or something. And there are more and more people with superpowers every year. And, like, society can't possibly um, stay together. And kind mm. of, like, civilization is falling apart. It's kind of like an apocalyptic story. Also, people's superpowers, uh, quote-unquote, trigger usually due to childhood trauma. So everyone Ooh. who has a superpower, it's, like, thematically connected to something that they've gone through as a person. And society is kind of built around this idea of like heroes and villains and like there's kind of a understood structure where the heroes and villains fight. And our protagonist is a girl, Taylor, um, who really, really wants to be a hero, but her power is that she can control bugs that are near her. Interesting. Yeah. And early on in the story, there's a case of mistaken identity where she runs into a group of um, aspiring supervillains who assume because she's the bug girl, that she is also an aspiring supervillain. And these people are a potential found family to her. And the story follows her. She's more of an unreliable narrator than any of the Animorphs, uh, but she's philosophical in the way that Cassie is and um, really considers, like, deconstructs the idea of, like, being a superhero, being a supervillain. Do the ends justify the means as, like, Mm -hmm. things get worse and worse and worse? it's also written episodically so the author would publish a chapter which would be like five thousand words twice a week basically indefinitely to produce this work and so it's very much serialized and you you do get 
Taylor's the main character, but you do get other characters' perspectives in kind of interlude chapters, the way that you get multiple Animorphs perspectives, and the characters are all really interesting. The overall structure of the series is it's episodic, but it also has that kind of spiraling out feeling of like, you get into the rhythm of like, oh, there's this group and they have little adventures and the the arcs resolve and they move on. But then eventually, as the story comes to its conclusion, Mm -hmm. everything kind of starts falling apart. Hmm. Um, And a lot of their capers are heist-like in structure. Nice. I feel like I want to add one more theme to your collection, Gray, which is this thing that was one of the most powerful elements of Animorphs to me, which is this juxtaposition of like having to maintain a normal life and also having to do this larger than life stuff often in secret, like, well, yes, in secret, like alongside it for Mm -hmm. like the good of the world kind of thing. And I think a lot of my, my favorite pieces of media have involved. I mean, Buffy has that also have involved elements of that. And, um, like that idea of a burden, but also sort of a liberation, like a liberating element of like, ugh, now I'm going to fail my math test. Okay, but maybe I don't care if I fail my math test. Like those those yeah. pieces. I'm looking, I'm rereading one of my favorite books, which is Robin McKinley's Sunshine. And so I have it out on the table here. And like that has that same element of like secretly having to do these like really difficult supernatural things while maintaining some kind of like ordinary responsibilities and like how to navigate the juxtaposition of those like that's it's just one of my favorite things i really like that do we did we address aaron's questions are there more parts of it uh that's it for aaron's questions there's one more reflective thing which comes to us from podcast host jenny um (laughs) what do we think the let's talk about each of the characters and what their arcs through the series have have been to date and maybe hear some thoughts from gray about what a natural end for these arcs might be Mm. who do you want to start with gray let's do it in order jake jake all right jake has the best arc in the series i think (laughs) it's good we can spend the most time on him and then (laughs) no it's just it's super interesting he starts out as like completely generic teen Mm mm-hmm he he wrestles with leadership throughout mm-hmm. the books and it almost destroys him it's like yeah. like we've seen will it destroy him will it not as we one of our know. as one of our commenters pointed out 49 and 50 are two of the best jake books and they're not yeah, from his point of view yeah, yeah. and like it's rare that we get a book like that like mm-hmm. normally the animorphs are so good about focusing on people but like jake's story as we approach the ending is really taking over the narrative and I think it's, I think it, I'm finding it super compelling. It's especially impressive in 49, where he has very little screen time. Like, it's just this one, like, scene and, like, a little few adjacent pieces where he fails to rescue his family, reveals everything to them. But it is the most powerful part of the book. Mm-hmm. And this sort of dissolution of the thing he's been fighting for the whole time that's been keeping him going is just, yeah. Where it's, will he It's also, it? like, in a sort of i don't know this is maybe me getting out my own about like stupid pretentious ideas but because he is like the generic every teen like white male whatever person he has the perfect family that's all he wants those are his only motivations he sort of like has no personality other than like maybe being slightly into nerdy military stuff and then like thematically it seems appropriate to be like yeah and guess what there's no going home kid right like he seems to be learning that lesson the hardest. And like mm-hmm. maybe part of the reason why he's not as resilient is because he had such a good life 
until now, yeah. right? Like he coasts on that originally, and then he's not able to kind of like um, weather that storm as well as Marco does, who starts yeah. off the book with a tough family situation, having to be the adult to his dad in a way that, you know, Cassie was just learning to do in book 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's an interesting question. To what extent are their character arcs internal and to what extent do they are they inextricably connected to their family situation like marco's so far at this point book 51 seems to have been this sort of resolution of the situation with his mom and jake's has been like the dissolution of his family and the failure to resolve the thing with tom and Mm -hmm. i guess with tobias you also see sort of this coming out of nowhere resolution almost I feel like Cassie's is a little bit less connected to her family. Rachel's is less connected to her family. Max's is not very connected to his family. It's connected to his found family. Yeah. Any other thoughts on Jake? Like what his what his arc has been? It's hard because like we have three books left and I feel right. like a lot of this is just going to need to be wrapped up in those three books. But, you know, one of the things we've talked about is, I mean, as you were saying, like his, his emotional journey as well and how hard he's taken his failure, the last few books. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how that's going to manifest in the kind of post-war Jake. Mm. You know, I think they're all going to have PTSD for different reasons, Uh but Jake's is going to be very self-directed in a way because he has taken on so much responsibility. We've also seen very recently him have some control issues over the Animorphs. And I'm wondering, I mean, that might've just been a manifestation of his reluctance to be a leader at all i don't know but i'm wondering where that will go yeah okay that's jake rachel rachel like i don't know i she we have a rachel book left but like i feel like the we've, last we've rachel, talked about how yeah, rachel's like, arc stops after david <laughs> no but i i don't know I felt 27 like, is a good rachel book yeah. yeah i felt like the thing with cryak like it was poorly done but in a way it was almost a resolution or like it, it was okay, you could become this sort of ridiculous off the charts thing that the books have been sort of driving you towards in the last, you know, the last few Rachel books. And she says no, but then she still has to make this sort of not larger than life choice, this like very concrete choice about what to do with David and what does she want her role with violence to be? Is it violence for mercy? Is it violence to protect the others from violence? Right, but like Rachel's arc in her own books is completely different from her arc in other people's books, right? Well, like, we haven't seen the same characterization of her in other people's books in the last two. Which one was the Rachel book? Now the numbers are wrong, and I can't I keep know, track. I know, I hate it. Forty-eight was Rachel. There was there was Crack David, books. then there was Helm of Crons. Before that was the one that no longer exists. Right. Um, I just before mean that uh, was Starfish. In other people's books, so in mm. the the Marco Tobias. Cassie books that we've seen since the return, Rachel hasn't been characterized as much as the sort of violent out of control one as she often is as like a throwaway line about her. So I wonder if there's like an acceptance of her character or if she has come around in some way to that since, as you say, like Cryak has kind of concluded some part of her emotional art. Yeah. Yeah. Much as I didn't like that book, I, I did at least like the way it was sort of a rejection of the extreme writing of Rachel we've been getting. I don't know if it was intended as that, but like, that's, that's what it feels like to me. It's the only redeeming. Quality. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Tobias. 
Is he a boy? Is he a bird? <laughs> Definitely some like self acceptance, like self worth issues. Hmm. Yeah. But I mean, also now he has his mom. So like, is he going to find additional acceptance because he has her in his life now? That feels almost like a cheat to me. I feel like Tobias's arc, and there's, there's some Taylor stuff in 43 that might be interesting to get into, but like, it's sort of every Tobias book kind of wraps up Tobias's arc at like, <laughs> at least like 3, 13, 23, and 33. And I really love the way 33 ends. Mm. And... Perhaps not coincidentally, like, that's a little bit the marker in my mind of, like, that is as far in the series as I think I would reread. Like, that is the mm. part of the series that I love with all my heart. Oof. And, like, okay. the like there's some good stuff after that. It's not stuff I'm attached to for the most part, to the same extent. Like, a lot of this is nostalgia-driven. It's not just because everything after that sucks. But, like, the thing where he, like, really, like, he gets, like, broken down and like Rachel is there to help start to put him back together and Mm -hmm. he gets this community and specifically this like loving relationship that he never had and it's just a really wonderful conclusion for him almost I'm not sure these books understand just how good the Rachel Tobias relationship is. <laughs> That's hard to disagree how, with. Yeah, yeah, I don't think the books understand how well they have done in mm-hmm. establishing this relationship. And maybe I'm being, you know, I'm I'm sort of. And I think Tobias it, books but... have done much better than Rachel books have done. On that I, yes, this might be just our our taste and where we prefer stories to end. But I see forty three as such. A conclusion to Tobias's arc compared to 33 uh-huh. because 33 right you do get that like it's it's a very uplifting note but you mm-hmm. get 13 also is like a very uplifting oh yeah note they, for all, Tobias they all too, conclude, right like they yeah. all they all conclude but 43 you basically get he's dealing with the PTSD from being tortured Taylor literally comes back to haunt him and he gets to finally accept that he made a choice Ooh, yeah. to be trapped yeah, 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 and yeah. he's okay with it and he and Rachel basically say like well you know like we're going to kind of leave Cassie to worry about mm-hmm. those like really big heavy things and we're going to be with each other mm-hmm. and that's enough for us. And to me mm-hmm. that like, I feel like um, the reason that the, the Lauren book that we just read 49 was like, so weak compared to the others yeah. is because it doesn't follow up on any of that. And it's very much like, introducing a new problem for Tobias and then resolving it within the book yeah. and spending half the book on their families and Jake and stuff. Yeah. It's like, it's a lot more like resolving the series and yeah. less furthering Tobias. So yeah. Yeah. I'm not actually sure that that provides a clear through line as to where Tobias goes by the end of the series. Cause I feel like 43 is like his moment of Zen and mm-hmm. he's still always going to be an emo bird boy, but <laughs> I think he's, he's, he's done a lot of um, healing through introspection. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And it's a lot thanks to, like you were saying, this incredible connection forged yeah. between Rachel and Tobias. Mm-hmm. Ugh, yes. Um, Cassie? Cassie. I can't comment. You guys have had it. <laughs> yeah, she... I loved the thing that you said in the last episode, Ted, about Cassie having to face herself from the beginning of the series. Or, sorry, yeah. two episodes ago. With, like, the sort of naivete that she had. And I love the awakening she has in 9, and then the struggle she has in 19. And then um, sort of the 
I know, Gray, you don't like 29. I love 29, and I feel like the the independence she has to take onto herself, like, she can't be just the one who ha- who objects to stuff anymore because now she's, like, she has to be the one who does all the stuff. And I think she that doesn't really come back until 43. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not sure we get anywhere really interesting in Cassie's arc in the 30s, but then 43 when she has to make the terrible choice to... And mm. to like br- like have this brutal fight against just inflict these terrible like near fatal maybe fatal injuries on all of these people to save her friends even though it was for an action she didn't believe in and then I'm not sure like I'm not sure where to fit the thing in 50, 50 into that but it feels like she is just having to face harder and harder decisions that compromise like this thing that she cares about the most, which is not destroying herself and letting her friends be destroyed by these these terrible things that they have to do. Hmm. I don't know if that's the thing she cares about the most. Maybe that's the, you know, fate of the planet. I don't know. But that is, that's sort of what her morality is pegged on is like, will it destroy me to do this? Will it destroy my friends to do this? And I don't know. It feels like in 43, she made one kind of choice. And then in 50, she made the opposite choice. Maybe that's where she's coming down. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I one of the things that we talked about in two episodes ago was how bad this choice was and yeah. how much she risked by doing that, uh, by letting the blue box go. And my endgame prediction has been that somebody dies. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, I'm kind of now hoping that it isn't Cassie. I've been thinking about this, and mm-hmm. I guess a little bit of that is that I don't want her misplaced, misguided, and misjudged compassion to be punished. Mm. Because she was making I just she was making the decision she thought was best. Now, as we discussed, that's like super paternalistic and very, very dumb. <laughs> but I also, you know. If she gets fridged for that, I feel like it's a bad um, precedent. Now, the same thing is true if Rachel gets fridged, right? Now she's getting punished for being angry. Yeah. Right? Like, it's just, it's one of those things, like, it's hard when people, I don't know. It's also interesting, like, death in narrative can also be very redemptive. So that's an element to be considered. Like, there there can Mm. be some, like, whitewashing of things that happened because, like, they paid the ultimate price. Yeah, maybe she... Has to pay the price for letting the blue box. I don't know. Go. I don't know. Hmm. I don't remember most of the things that Ted is keeping silent about. So we'll see. Sorry, Ted. <laughs> Should I say something mysterious? Oh, please. Sure. Say something like mysterious and also like prophetic. It'll just like keep I us think, up at night. I think uh, Cassie's arc has a lot to do with her chosen battle morph. Hmm. Interesting. It's about persistence and being a werewolf. This is why she's so important in the world where there is no moon. That's not a moon. It's a candrona. <laughs> wait, wait, but I thought the Yerks only blew up the moon in Jake's dream. Are they going to blow up the moon, Ted? That's going to mess with I'm, the earth. I'm just, I'm, I'm messing with y'all. Oh, man. Um, okay. Wait, Marco, Marco. Oh, yeah. We have more characters. Don't forget about Marco and Axe, everyone. You What's know, Marco's Arco? No. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so Marco has this, his arc, his relationship to the fight, his relationship to his, like, hope for his mother, 
And then there's also sort of ruthlessness. Hmm. I don't know that he's ever changed his mind on ruthlessness. That might not be an arc so much as a consistent attribute. Hmm. He has his reluctance, his devotion, and his, like, I mean, at this point, he's he's able to fight from a place of, like, strength in what he has rather than, like, desperation for what he doesn't have, I feel like. Hmm. I think Marco's arc is the conflict between his bright, clear line rationality Mm. And the totally irrational hope that he can save his mom. Ooh, I like that. Right? So that drives his arc up to 45. And 51 is, like, a little bit of, like, what's next for me? Like, (laughs) my arc is done. I can be happy now. (laughs) Right. And, you know, it's not over yet. But Hmm. Okay. Abbott Axe. Axe's arc has a lot to do with becoming human. (laughs) I love it. Axe's arc is one of the most delightful things about rereading the series this time, because I feel like he's just more and more human every book, even though he, like, the Axe developing a sense of humor has been a running gag, but it is truly (laughs) a well-paced arc throughout the entire series, culminating in Marco realizing Axe is funny now. (laughs) It's so good. Does he have, I don't know, does he have, he has definitely has an arc with his, like, relationship with the Animorphs, which has, like, yeah, well, so he's sort of committed to the Animorphs, like, extra, like, committed to Jake in 18, and then he betrays Jake He betrays them, like, less and less and less and less, (laughs) to the point where he does the whole long con on Estrid. Uh Uh-huh. But then then he has the pro-human, not pro-Andalite betrayal. Like, he betrays Animorphs in 46 the way the rest of the Animorphs betray each other, right? Like, it's not because he's (laughs) He's an Andalite. He's a true Animorph He justifies it. By, this was just this was my point in 46. Yeah. He justifies it because he's other, but he's upset because he sees humans dying. And that's Yeah, and Marco has this line. It's like, how much is it about like saving these people and how much is it about glory for the Andalites? But that's not present in the book exactly. at all. Like Axe, yeah. it is not about glory for the Andalites. You can kind of maybe see why Marco might think that based on Axe's history, but like that's not what it's about. Alright, what about yeah. what about David's arc? Uh <laughs> John has asked that the council make an actual decision on whether Rachel kills David. Yes. Which means it comes down to Jenny. Yes. Rachel kills David. Okay. The council has ruled. Yeah. I think it's the only ending that makes sense. It's the best choice for Rachel. It's the choice that I want her to have made, even though I know it would, like, it, it must have been a terrible thing to have to do. I think she has the strength for it. I think that it is right. And... I think it's the only way for that narrative to be resolved unless it's going to come back. But like, I, I don't know. I'm pretty sure it like got resolved and we just didn't get to see it, which was poor writing, but yeah. Okay, great. Are there other minor characters arcs we want to talk about? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we've been recording for a long time. Let's... Are you a leader looking for more? Do you crave the fear and loyalty of your followers? Is there a band of do-gooders who always get in your way? If you answered yes to all of these, you might be a villain. But the real question is, are you a supervillain? How do you know? Well, look no further. We have the answer. In our book, Supervillainy Made Easy, the complete 12-step guide to being the worst. This book has everything you need to ensure that you will be remembered and feared throughout your empire. Our chapters cover a range of topics, such as minions, when to let live and when to decapitate, and using dread to ensure your dramatic entrance every time. We also include helpful hints throughout the book, with tips such as never use the same evil plan twice, or keep backups of your super-secret tack, 
and always gloat over your enemies when given the chance. If this sounds like the book for you, then don't wait. Call now and start setting your plans for world domination in motion today. Uh, Jenny, what's next? Oh, is it my turn? Okay. Uh, let's talk about ending feels since we were just talking about the ending. <sighs> I'm just going to, this is just going to be relentless teasing, Gray. I'm so sorry. But our listeners um, started to to comment about the ending as we started approaching the ending and had a, a thread got started where people were just like, here are my overall takes on the ending. I'm going to keep this totally spoiler free, <laughs> but not feelings free. Um, okay. And so... I won't. I won't call out the um, the particular names and stuff. I'll just read some quotes. Um, so kicks it off. I unapologetically love the ending of the series. It probably puts me in the minority when it comes to Animorphs fans, but it's great. I love it. I really like the ending. There's just one sticking point. Otherwise, like you've got character actions that maybe aren't the wisest or best, but they feel pretty in character. I don't know if I'd say I love the ending, but I would say I appreciate and respect it. I certainly think it's an appropriate way for the series to wrap, and I wouldn't change it. I was devastated by the ending, but even that first time, I was okay with it. Heartbreaking, though. So very, very heartbreaking. And, finally, very few pieces of fiction have ever been able to hurt me because I finished Animorphs when I was like eight. I'm emotionally numb now. <laughs> this is not making me less worried about rereading it. <laughs> or me. Their emotions were stunted at age eight by reading these books. Yeah, someone someone pointed out that like probably people who are still Animorphs fans generally liked the ending. It's like a self-selecting group of people who have nostalgia for Animorphs. Like even you, Jenny, didn't hate the ending so much that you wrote off the entire series. Like, I've definitely read things where the ending was so bad, I've written the whole thing off. I mean, I hated the last ten books a lot, and I didn't, I wasn't part of Animorphs fandom, Mm. Um, but I, it didn't sour me on the series, that's true. Yeah, I'm worried. I'm worried. (laughs) I'm so excited to get all of our our reactions, even while I'm terrified. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Since we're on ending things, should we talk speculation? Oh, yes. Mm. This is more, maybe it's more like headcanons than speculation, but this is, people have some good theories. So what do you guys think would have happened if Marco had died in book 42, the Helmicron's coming back? AA points out, if Marco dies, right, they're all small. Mm -hmm. Um, They're all super, super small. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Animorphs would have had to morph giant, giant anteater. The giant, giant (laughs) anteater would have been three quarters of an inch long. But that'd be enough to perceive the world a little better and start an involved process of catching insects, which the Animorphs could acquire, and then morph those larger insects, eventually being able to acquire something large enough to get back to the barn. Would have taken a long time, though. Couldn't they have acquired that dog? Rabies dog. Yeah. yeah. And they morphed it, and it, would, it wouldn't have rabies, right? Right. I mean, it might be hard to get outside, and then a dog might be, like, picked up by, you know, whatever. But I don't know. I, or acquired one of the people... I guess it depends how far they could move as, like, extra tiny Helmicrons. Maybe they would have to more right. giant, giant anteaters get over to where there are people, and then... Uh... Are tiny, tiny Helmicrons Helmicronies? No, those are Helmicrons who are friends and help each other with business <clears throat> deals, Ted. Oh, sorry. Tiny, They're... tiny Helmicrons are Helmicrons. Yes! I was oh going to say the same God. thing, Gray! Yes, 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 yes! 
if the Helmicrons had come back a third time, would they have become Helmicronic? <laughs> yes. Uh, more Helmicron thoughts. <laughs> so we know that the Helmicrons, this is from um, Cebu the Goblin on Twitter. Um, so Helmicrons, why do they have Dracon beams in book 42? Mm-hmm. Well, we know they have undisclosed history with the Yurks because in oh, book right. 24, Visser 3 clearly knew about the Helmicrons and disliked them. So here's sure. some headcanon about that. In the early days of the Yerk Empire, they were searching desperately for hosts. They found a planet with creatures that are sentient, but too small to infest. Pre-faster-than-light travel Helmicrons. Initially, they tried to establish an alliance because the Helmicrons are warlike and could prove useful. So they teach them the basics of Z-space travel and how to build Dracons, not realizing they are repeating history. Oh no. The Helmicrons end up rebelling the same way the Yerks had done to Ciro. And in the Helmicrons' minds, they are competing with their former masters to take over the galaxy. <laughs> I have a question okay. that was sparked from this. Because I was like, how did the Yurks travel before Ciro? And of course, this headcanon is after Ciro. But some relatives of the Yurks ended up on the Iskort planet. Did they have spacecraft? Did they lose spacecraft? Did mm. they like, devolve after that? Okay. That's, yeah, I don't know. Just, you know, throwing that out there. Who knows? Could have been a common ancestor yeah. traveling yeah. on comets. <laughs> blame the Scritna. I don't know. I blame everything on the Scritna. Amazing. Um, Scholastica provides um, some plausible gamer headcanon for why the Ketrans were destroyed. I can't help but wonder if there was some Ketran who knew that the Capacins would respond with genocidal violence, but kept live streaming the games anyway, hoping for just that, because they were angry at some other gamers. And this was a very extreme version of swatting. <laughs> I don't know what swatting is, but I love that idea. Oh, swatting is a thing that uh, happens in game live streaming culture where people will call the police on people live streaming to interrupt their games. So oh like God. report something, something happening. Never call the police. Please, if you take one thing away from our podcast... Don't call the police. I don't know that we've really been harping on this enough for that to be the one thing people take away, but, like, let's try to reinforce it now. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the first book of Animorphs, as someone pointed out on my Twitter this week, was, like, don't trust the cops. Good point. That's right. Animorphs is all about abolishing the cops. Also, wow, let's just take a step back at, like, the extreme version of swatting, which is, let's call in these murderous aliens. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So we can blame... What was Tuman's friend? I don't know. Human? No. Newman? No, it's M- <laughs> it was probably M- Newman. Yeah. <laughs> Michael? What was his name? Michael. <laughs> Just definitely not Michael. Tuman, Lakava, and Michael. <laughs> um, this comes from guest host Lauren. It's an invitation for us to speculate about what Rachel and Tobias's relationship might have been like if Rachel got trapped as a rat notlet. Lauren suggests this might be a Twilight-type situation with Tobias overcome (laughs) with hunger for Rachel's rat body. Yes, but he also loves her, so he can't eat her. And then he'd be, like, telling her, like, you shouldn't be with me, I'm dangerous. (laughs) And she'd be like, I only knew three things. One, he was a red-tailed hawk. Two, there was some part of him that hungered for my rat body. (laughs) And three, I was absolutely irrevocably in love with him. (laughs) 
I think eventually he would also become Rat Nothlet, and they would live happily oh. together for, for a very short amount of time. Great, that's so sweet. That's really sad. A also had some, basically a, a pitch for the 30s, a 30s segment of the Animorphs that didn't happen. The 30s almost had a theme about the Animorphs and their relationships with their families, which has certainly changed over time. So uh, Marco and Jake in 30 and 31, Visser, Marco in 35, that's very obvious. Rachel's parents are in 32. 33 has a surprise Elfangor appearance mm-hmm. with his, his hidden memories. And, you know, maybe a plot that should have been in 34 about Toby and her great-grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, but here... Imagine the 30s that leaned into the theme of changing relationships with the Animorphs families. Yerk's angling for Rachel's lawyer mother, or already having her dad, or Jordan being tempted by the sharing. Axe getting a letter from home, having the chance to send one back, and weighing if he should tell his parents about Tobias. Mm. A smart Yerk, wanting to know more about the animals the bandits keep morphing, targeting Cassie's mom. Cassie's dad actually being in the barn doing wildlife rehabilitation. (laughs) It takes a lot of time and work and necessitating them all meeting somewhere else and Cassie being exasperated and annoyed by him, him doing something she always found meaningful. Some plot where one of Cassie's parents had a prior marriage and she has an adult half-sibling who who was the niece brought up in 37 (laughs) and that family coming to visit and there being a small child that makes things complicated. And, you know, there's a lot that could have happened there. Some of it might have still been bad, but... Hey. <laughs> what interesting fic ideas. I love the wild speculation. It's fun. Oh, yeah. Definitely. That's it for speculation. Who's up next? I believe it's me. Let's okay. talk about Cassie's Choice. <gasps> bum, bum, bum. I'm not sure how much we can talk. We talked about it a lot already. Uh, I know <laughs> Ted has my so bad. I included this because I just want to shout out to KS. KS, you and I are cut from the same cloth. <laughs> I, I've, I've been so pleased with your reactions to the end of the series, in particular you having my back about the stuff that I was trying to say in 50. I know that the book is not well written, and I know that the book as presented doesn't justify anything, but yeah. like, you get me. <laughs> um, I, I do want to read some of the comments. So uh, this is callback to book 44, also from KS, I think knowing what was coming. Uh, remember when we talked about whether Cassie was a risk taker? Oh, Yeah. Even if she doesn't think through what the specific consequences will be, she still engages in risky behavior, knowing that it's dangerous and this could end poorly with the basic mindset of this is the right thing to do and it could end badly, but what if it doesn't? (laughs) Yes, risk taker. I rest Um, my case. I'm not happy about it, though. KS points out that uh, back in like book 20, we were all saying Cassie needs to be in charge of getting the new Animorphs on board. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Um... You know, okay, the fact that there's no real onboarding that we get to see in 50 is is extra, I mean, it's part of the spiraling out, right? But it's extra frustrating because I feel like earlier in the series, we got to see these difficult and interesting things in detail. It's like and the procedural detail, yeah, right? It it's would like... have been so great to have the space to see it, but like... This was my point about, like, everything's diluted. Like, there just isn't time. There isn't time to go through the stuff with the parents in detail. There isn't time to go through the new Animorph stuff in detail. So I feel like I'm just not getting what I want out of all of these potentially interesting developments. 
that's part of why like them failing to catch a duck for so long was so satisfying in 51 <laughs> yeah, right because we finally get to see one it, of those moments yeah. 51 had a lot of that actually which is why it was despite it being in it's some refreshing. ways fluffy yeah. and like missing out on a lot of what the other half of the group was doing we got mm-hmm. the stuff that did happen we got to see in really satisfying detail instead of trying to cram way too much too fast um so one defense of Cassie that I think I tried to articulate, but KS also articulates, is that because of who Cassie is and the way that she thinks about and doubts herself, the narrative itself focuses a lot more on potential bad consequences of her choices mm. than of the other Animorphs' mm. choices necess- like throughout. So mm. doesn't doesn't excuse what she did, but I think is an interesting observation about, like, especially 19, true, is like it really hammers home how bad this decision is, and then she gets lucky and, like, mm-hmm. it's not like the Animorphs don't make risky decisions, but usually that it gets resolved without as much yes. thought and care. Mm-hmm. I will say hers are a different level of risky, but yeah. Totally fair. Totally fair. <laughs> Hugin points out that uh, Cassie biting Jake's leg could be a parallel to Cassie biting David's leg to stop him from betraying yeah, I them love that. back in 21 when David like was going to run and flee to Visser 3. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And he says the first time she's sacrificing those close to David to protect the team and war effort, but this time she's sacrificing the war effort and potentially her place on the team to protect someone close to Jake. Yeah, really Mm. it's sort of the inverse. That's Um, interesting. The point that I don't think you guys quite touched on, though maybe it went without saying, that Hugin goes on to make is that no matter what Cassie's vision is here, if the Yurks behave rationally at all, the entire Yurk Empire is now morph capable. Mm-hmm. And even if That's, they retreat uh, yeah. from Earth, Cassie's doomed the galaxy to morph capable yeah. Yurks in the yeah. future. Or yes. whatever hosts they have, morph, morph capable hosts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, pretty bad. Yeah. Morphing um, technology should really just be harder to acquire, I feel like. Yeah. Than yeah. just a box that you touch sometimes, yeah. even if you're an ant. can't be destroyed. <laughs> or turned off. Yeah. <laughs> You need a code uh, or something, Andalites. Come on. I will just read one other commendation of myself, which, Gray, you should probably <laughs> cut. But hey, I so appreciated this. She said, Ted did such a good job talking around the foreshadowing. I agree. Aww, it should have been stated. Job, Ted. I had to laugh at how it came up in the podcast. <gasps> oh, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> How dare you? Um, I'm going to go back and like re-listen to these podcast yeah. episodes and be incredibly impressed with Ted and Jenny <laughs> with like the things that you've managed to keep, especially Ted, about the yeah. ending from me and also be mad. What's next? Um, post-series plans. Okay. So we're wrapping up this podcast soon. Oh man, do we have to? Well, <laughs> I think so. some other specific suggestions. We've talked about doing Animorphology-ology where we reread the invasion and re-listen to our first episode and uh-huh. talk about it again. That could be a fun thing to do in concert with an overall series reflection or as a specific yeah. a specific episode. Um, I would love to invite every guest host that we've had on the yeah. podcast back if they want to come yep. back for kind of a panel discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, we could break it into like, first-time readers and long-time readers. Yeah. But yeah, I'd love... I know we have guest hosts who are reading for the first time, and we have yeah. guest hosts who have who are probably more Animorphs 
knowledgeable than Jenny. Or I feel Ryan. like we could lump them together and just get the diversity of opinion, also. Yeah, but, but it'd be it'd be fun to have a really big conversation, um, and maybe we'll have some talking points and things like that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. Yeah, we will attempt to reach out to everyone. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess if you're listening to this, you can also reach out to us. I think that we should tell people to say stay subscribed to Anamorphology at least through October because we should definitely read the graphic novel when it comes out Mm -hmm. and have Mm -hmm. a podcast episode where we talk about it. Yeah. Um, Love that. I don't think we need to have weekly episodes until October. Agreed. Um, But maybe like a monthly pace, we could do Mm -hmm. some like fanfic roundups or one idea that I thought is we could each pick one or two of our favorite books and then listen to episodes of a variety of different Animorphs podcasts about that one book and then report back to the rest of the council and say like, oh, I listened to Minds at Yerk and Morph Club and what they said about book 18 and this is what I liked about it. Yeah. Um, And the TV show. Yeah. The TV show. So listeners have asked, we did try watching the TV show. We made Jenny watch it. We, (laughs) We struggled to come up with stuff to say about it to fill out a podcast episode yeah. but gray and i have pledged to watch oh it the God. rest of it together at some point so if yeah. we're inspired we may come back with some more post-series tv show content i can just be part of the podcast just heckle you guys um we have had both requests and um expressions of worry and fear that we will cover vegemorphs yes the vegetable <laughs> morphing <laughs> parody of the invasion Absolutely. If Jenny says we should, then we should. All right. So we may be reading Vegemorphs and talking about that. Maybe. Come on, Ted. (laughs) Um, Someone suggested interviewing an Animorphs ghostwriter, which like... Well, yeah, I would love to do that. I tried to search for Ellen Guru. Oh, the best one. Yeah. So good. I I couldn't find her online. Oh, man. I I would love... If anyone has a lead on like an Animorphs ghostwriter and they're not... They don't like totally hate it because ghostwriting for Animorph sucked, which seems to maybe have been the case. Uh, it would be really cool to talk to them. I also haven't looked at whether other podcasts have like interviewed them before because like if they've done a podcast interview, then probably we go listen to that. One one last thing in before you guys jump in is potentially doing an Everworld podcast. Mm-hmm. Everworld, I, I, I'm willing. Is the series responsible? <laughs> For Catherine Applegate having to hire Animorphs Ghostwriters. Yeah, it wasn't worth it, in my opinion. So uh, my understanding of the story is that Everworld started, Kay Applegate was going to write the first couple and then was going to ghostwrite that series. But for whatever reason, that wasn't feasible. And then they were contracted to do 14 books a year, plus Everworld, plus other things. And they said, okay, we have to have Animorphs Ghostwriters. So there were 12 books in the Everworld series. Mm-hmm. And my understanding is that no Animorphs podcast has yet done a complete Everworld read through. That That's like the thing that's like candy for me. I'm like, we could do it. We could do a complete Everworld read through. And you read all of Everworld. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's not as good as Animorphs. I found the characters less compelling, but it's all about mythology. So, oh, I like mythology. Exactly. So I think you'll actually really like that. I think you'll have a lot to say about that. Okay. So that would also be a fun contrast with Animorphs because we know it's the same writers. Um, mm-hmm. So we can yeah, pick sure apart a lot of what's unique to Animorphs and what feels Apple Grant-y. Yeah. Have you read anything else by Apple Grant? 
I read the first of the Remnant series. That was after Everworld also, yeah. right? And then I just, I didn't, I don't know if there were more. I didn't read them. Yeah. And, yeah. I was like I pretty like, old for them at the, that point. I was like 16. I'd like to read some of her other books. That would be lovely. Yeah. The one and only Ivan. The one and only Ivan is the one that won the Newbery Award. Um, but I also picked up Crenshaw recently at like a used book Ooh. sale. I mean, recently, like six months ago, back mm-hmm. when we could go outside to use book sales. Ugh, um, yeah. Which is about a cat, like a giant cat. I saw the cover, saw it was Catherine Applegate, and was like, She likes cats. Oh, you wrote a book for me. <laughs> her and this three. Um, so, I mean, at the very least, we could read some of her one offs. That would be great. So I also, I think we should do a fan fiction challenge, and I think the three of us should decide how we want that to work. Uh, so, you know, stay tuned, everyone. All right, what's next? Let's do small things. I have one small thing. What is it? This is a request from my friend John, who would like to know what your celebrity couple name would be. Jenny oh, and Ted. Oh, that's, that's in here. I, this is in the small things category. Oh, is it? Well done, Greg. I'm so delighted. <laughs> Oh, yeah. No, we already have one. What is it? Okay, here's John's question. Can we give Ted and Jenny a celebrity couple name? Tenny? Jed? Jeddy? (laughs) Geodore? Assuming Ted's first real name is Theodore. Tendy? Tedney? I'm open. (laughs) Thank goodness, John, because those were terrible (laughs) suggestions. Those were all just not catchy at all. (laughs) Yeah, so um, my real first name is not Theodore. And Jenny's real first name is not Jennifer. I mean, it is, but like, so, mine technically is Jennifer, but like, it totally isn't. I don't, I've never gone by that. It's not my name. So our couple name would be Theofer. Gray doesn't look convinced. Because it's nothing from either of your names. Yes, exactly. Exactly. All right. I like Theofer and you guys are gross. <laughs> the end. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, Geodore is, is... Not bad. It's not as good as Theofer, though, which is the Geodor correct just reminds me of the Pokemon Geodude. <laughs> it does sound like we're like Geodes or something. Another question from John is, what are our battle morphs? Mm. We might have picked this already, but no, I we think could answer we it again. Like, what? what animal if you could only morph one animal? Yeah. I want a great cat. I don't know which one. I feel like I can't take Tiger because that's just so Jake. Would you but accept like, like a pretty good cat? <laughs> no, only a great one. Dead. I think maybe like a lioness. Like, because, yeah. like, lion what also feels like it's been taken. Lynx are a lot smaller. What about a cougar? I think those are also smaller. What about like a I, puma? I want... <laughs> I'm going for firepower here. Battle morph, Ted. Battle yeah, morph. Yeah. We want Jenny to survive the battle. Yeah, but definitely, definitely the sort of the the speed and agility of the of the great cats is appealing to me. How about you, Gray? Um, uh, a lioness would be um, pretty high on my list. So would hyena. Oh. Like, I don't know enough about them as animals, except for what we learned in Alternamorphs, which I assume was wrong. Um, <laughs> but I feel like they're really powerful. But, yeah, something like that. I think lioness would be really good. Well, we can't both be lionesses. because Oh, then I'll be a hyena. The diversity. That's so, fine. Yeah, yeah in, no, the, in the case it. where we're fighting together, we can do that. Right. Good call. Ted. I'm, yeah, I haven't thought of actually a good answer. I was going to come... Crocodile is pretty good. I could be like a, like a, a fugu... And morph ahead of the battle, the really poisonous The uh, poisonous fish. blowfish? The poisonous what? blowfish. So I could morph, have another animorph, like cut off some of the poisonous parts, <laughs> demorph, and then I could just use that poison 
before the battle even starts. Oh my god. Well, then you could have a different battle. Why wouldn't you just be a snake? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) Because it's not as elaborate. I could be a poison arrow frog and have Visser 3 step on me. There you go. Appealing. Who doesn't want to be stepped on by I mean, the three? thing about the fugu is it's like its liver is what I think <laughs> you eat. Okay, so that's okay. Cut out your liver. Could could like a Saint Bernard be fearsome in battle? Like one Why of those really big rescue dogs? No. Wouldn't a wolf be better? I don't know. Saint I just Bernard's like big just dogs. <laughs> well, you could have a big dog morph, and then uh, you have to fear battle. Okay. Morph. What about like um like an Irish wolfhound? Ooh yeah. I love them very much, mm. and they are the size of small horses. And they're scary. <laughs> I feel like they're they're pretty fragile, though. Mm. Yeah. I mean, most big dogs are relatively fragile. Yeah, yeah that's not great for battle. Hmm. Be a dingo. That's a big dog. <laughs> Ooh, or like one of the like a South African wild dog. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pretty. They're pretty little, though. It's like it's almost as bad as bobcat. I mean, you can be a hyena, because that's, like, kind of close. No. I want to be a Komodo dragon. I changed my mind. Are they battle-capable? I mean, it takes a long time for your enemies to die, but they die in horrible pain. So, yeah, yeah, you know. (laughs) Six of one, half dozen of the other. I want to be one of Visor 3's huge monsters. That seems really effective. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one. I want to be an Andalite. That's a great battle morph. Oh, that's such a good battle morph. Why didn't I think of that? How about a moose? I could be a moose. I like moose. <laughs> can I take moose? You can have moose. I'll yeah. be moose. I'll be a moose. <laughs> great. 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 We're going to be such an effective team. We sure are. All right. Other small things? That was it. Okay. How about a Pokemon trainer? <gasps> oh, my God. Okay. I'm so excited about this. I know. I know. No one, like, you guys probably don't care, but I'm just going to read a lot of stuff about Pokemon. Go for it. I'm so um, excited. Let's do it. On on Twitter, Psych Slash or um, Patrick T posted trainer cards of his suggestions yeah, real good. of what six Pokemon team each Animorphs would have, including yeah. Pokemon trainer sprites for the six Animorphs and variants um, for Rachel, Marco, Axe, and Tobias. They're super good. Really, really good. They'll be in the show notes, but I just wanted to read some of the pontification about choices and which Pokemon go to which person. I think that this will be of general interest, even to co-counselors who may not be Mm -hmm. as familiar with what these Pokemon actually are. I am hardly a Pokemon super fan, but Psych Slash admits some of the Mon choices are lazy. Jake has a basketball monkey and a soldier centipede thing for obvious reasons and a sword and shield and a dragon because it just felt right. Axe has Pokemon that are lots of sweets. Uh, yes. A ghost that lives in a TV and can <laughs> control technology because he's a hacker, but mostly he likes watching TV. A Girafarig, which is a quadrupedal herbivore with stalks are on you its sure head. Is that a Girafarig? It looks like a giraffe. It's a Girafarig. <laughs> Girafarig. I want to be a Girafarig. That's my battle morph. A, a quadrupedal Wait, what herbivore. What giraffes look like? I've never seen them. They're really hard to look at. And They're see. so hard to find. A giraffe rig, <laughs> excuse me, is a quadrupedal herbivore with stalks on its head and a dangerous tail. Um, nice. Behem is just kind of an alien. The last two are both psychic. Rachel has her bird, her two main battle morphs, yes, she does. and a couple of pretty slash fashionable pocket mans. And... Starmie, the starfish Pokemon, because book 32 is the best worst book. (laughs) 
Um, Tobias has a bird, of course, a couple of dinosaurs, perfect, a rabbit, because he was obsessed with that one rabbit that one time. (laughs) I couldn't think of anything else to put there. (laughs) And Umbreon, which is Evie's dark morph, because it's vaguely feline-esque and Cat was his first morph. Torterra, because I imagined Tobias perching on that tree and it made me smile. It can represent the forest he lives in. Marco has a gorilla. A mega Kangaskhan, because I didn't want to give him a Q-bone to represent his mommy issues. Mr. Mime and Gengar, because he's the funny one, and there's no actual clown Pokemon. Yeah, Mr. Mime is close enough and terrifying. Alakazam and Basharp, because he's the smart one and the strategist. And Basharp is named for a chess piece for some reason. Cassie gets a whale and a butterfly. Um, because of that one time she got stuck as a caterpillar, then turned into a butterfly, and that reset the morph limit because the rules are made up and the points don't matter. That's <laughs> all I'm saying. <laughs> Blissey and Chansey are basically vet Pokemon, a horse and a wolf for obvious reasons, and a skunk because of the time she was obsessed with a skunk. I, sure. <laughs> I love your explanation. Yeah, Patrick, I the really love the way so that you're good. boiling down the Animorphs to their, like, you're boiling down their deep emotional relationships with animals to, like, Quirky obsessions, and I'm <laughs> here for time, it. time, she was obsessed with the skunk. I love it. The The great thing about um, the sprites is that in addition to Axe and Tobias having their human and animal forms, some commentary on, on the, alterna- the alternates, human and Andalite Axe, human and Hawk Tobias, pre and post haircut for Marco and Rachel. Um, <laughs> couldn't think of all good alternate sprites for Jake and Cassie. Marco has bi-colors yeah, on his shirt because I said so. Obviously. Um, and Human Axe and Tobias are both inspired more by various pieces of fan art than the actual book covers. Um, but the uh, human animorphs, besides Tobias and Axe, are based on the the first cover models. And Patrick, if you ever decide to do Pokemon rosters for uh, Esplan, Edris, Aftran, other, you know, David, Eric, other people that you were thinking of doing it for, we will totally talk about them on the podcast. Or Ted, Jenny, and Gray. Ooh! Oh, or Ted, Jenny, and Gray! Awesome. Um, I think we just picked our battle morphs. Also, hashtag, Cassie would absolutely have a dolphin Pokemon if there was one. Oh, man! There's, There's like a thousand Pokemon and no dolphins. Ridiculous. Yeah, but the thing is, they like fight in, like, Open air arenas. Um, <laughs> Just flopping around. I mean, I guess Magikarp, also, like, Magikarp. Yeah. Yeah. But Magikarp is useless. So, <laughs> so um, I was so pumped to see those sprites. I really wanted to highlight them. Cool. Anything else about the Pokemon trainers before we move That's to the That's it. Book rankings revisited. This was so hard, you guys. I've said already on this podcast, it's just, it's so hard for me to compare recent books with like books that I've loved for 20 years. It's just. Yeah. I didn't find this one as hard as I found the last one. Because they were all bad. 11 more books to add and nine of the 11 went in my fine category. So so. let's, I want to hear, I want to hear what's, what are the top like two or three from the latest set and where did they end up so i think okay. i think when we last ranked it was before we included megamorphs 4 uh-huh so everything from 41 on i can go first go so megamorphs 4 is the thing that i ranked the highest and i ranked it just above visser and just below number 21 the threat mm. um so it's close to it's close to my top 10 i don't know if it's actually in my top 10 um mm-hmm. but Written by Apple Grant, 
lots of pain. Love seeing the different takes on all the Animorphs and the fun alt-timeline thing. It's probably my favorite time travel Animorphs book, and I'm a sucker mm-hmm. for time travel Animorphs book books. Okay. The next one that I liked is a, a sort of tie, or they're in sequence, Elmus Chronicles and Book 43. Elmus Chronicles, because it's super well-written, it was really hard for me to place because it's not related to the Animorphs except for the the framing device. Mm-hmm. Um, 43, because after our podcast episode, I ended up liking it a lot more. And it's like, of all these books we've read recently, it's the one that I have the fondest. Like, oh yeah, that book was like really interesting thoughts about. I'm not sure if I reread it, it would still be so high. But mm-hmm. everything else, including these two, was below the invasion. So it's like way, mm-hmm. way down in my list. Yeah, I so the top book from this recent set for me was 45, which made it into slot number 14, right below the invasion, which, yeah, nothing new in my top 10, but I really loved 45, despite it being the beginning of the end. And then Magmore's 4 was slot 17, right after Visser for me. Also, yeah, really surprised by how much I enjoyed it. It was really, really well explored, the, the possibility of the alternate timeline. And after that, 43 is like solidly in the middle. And I don't know that there's like Elemis Chronicles is, oh, 49 and Elemis Chronicles and 46 are all, you know, bottom 20. And then 44, then then it gets bad. (laughs) Yeah, solid like half of these were in my bottom 15. Yeah. Okay, so I have a couple that ended up in my like, that moved around my top 15-ish, mm-hmm. um, Megamorphs 4 and 45. 45 mm-hmm. in my, probably in my top 10-ish. It's right around there. Mm-hmm. I wrote out my top five and my bottom five, and <laughs> two of the bottom five were from this most recent 11, and <laughs> none of the top five were. Three of um, my bottom. <laughs> four of mine. Yeah. <laughs> I feel that maybe I have misjudged the test, 43. Yeah. Because it's in my bottom five. Did I like it better than I remember? Wow, the one where, like, well, it was, like, kind Is of Is that the taxon brutal. one? The taxon yeah. one, yeah. I really didn't like it. Oh, okay. I thought it, you know, it explored some really cool stuff for Tobias, and it, like... It well, so let's let's get your bottom five, then. Yeah. All right, Greg. Oh, um, bottom okay. five. Do you want from worst to least worst or least worst to worst? Least worst to worst. Okay. So end so with the worst one. I... I don't know, maybe I need to revisit the test, but that's around there somewhere. Uh, underground, sickness, resistance, weakness. So uh, what is that? That was um, four. Underground is... Yeah, so the test is my fifth. So 43 is my fifth worst, but I may need to revisit that. Oh, okay, uh, all right. And then... So then underground, which 29. Is, yep, and then the sickness is 29 and then the resistance is 47 and then the weakness is the 37, but the not Jenny 37. <laughs> the Jenny 37 is my number one. Wait, where did 41 and 48 end up for you? The familiar and yep, the return. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I'm matching my things. Um, okay. So familiar and the return, um, return ended up in my bottom 10 mm-hmm. and the other one's like up somewhere in the, between the bottom 10 and the top 20 because in there it's all just okay got it yeah hard to to keep track so my bottom five are yeah ted 39 only made one of our bottom fives my bottom five is 
39, um, the, the Buffy human one. And then 41, the one where Jake has a dream. 48, the one where David comes back. 47, the one with the Civil War. And 37, the worst book. Yep. I did a lot of thinking about my, what had previously been fairly low-ranked books, such as 11 and Megamorphs 1, Mm -hmm. and realized that when compared to things like 35, 36, 25, even 4, they're really much better. Yeah, 11! There was a a big shake-up in my bottom 10, but the bottom 5 probably won't surprise anyone. Coming in at 5th from the bottom is 41. It pains me that I ranked other books below this because it was the one I was least looking forward to rereading. But (laughs) aside from the fact that it's totally pointless, it's like kind of fun and it's well-written. Like there's some interesting stuff going on. Hard for me to hate it that much. Uh, Below that, fourth from the bottom, I put 42 because it was totally Mm. pointless. It was so disappointing on a reread. This is one where like probably objectively it's not as bad as some of the other ones. Like it didn't have as many plot holes and things, but it still had some and the characterization was so weak and it was like such a filler book. Yeah. Uh, Then 48, um, third from the bottom, then 47, then 37. Hmm. No further need to be said. Yeah. That's my, my bottom three also. I had, yeah, I had 42 bottom 10. Like it was fine. Like there, it didn't have the glaring errors that like the ones below it had. I felt like glarers. Exactly. I am wondering if twenty five should be above forty two now, but I don't know if we need to talk about top five because I feel like they are not. They haven't changed. Like, yeah. No one had yeah. new stuff in the top five. Yeah. Thirty nine's redeemed by how bad the series got. I love it. <laughs> yeah, thirty nine is like what even in is retrospect. it? But I don't hate it. <laughs> All right, so anything else we need to do to wrap up? Are we Are we ready for the ending? No. I'm not ready. You might be ready, Ted. I'm really, really excited. There's been, a, there's been like, so much biting back feelings yeah. about gonna things. Yeah, we're going to be free. It's going to be really good to be free. Mm-hmm. Okay. I do want, though, like, for the last book to, like, I, I'm really sad that we're not going to be able to, like, sit in the same room together and read mm. it. Yeah, we we can maybe do something over Zoom, but that was kind of what I was looking forward to. Me too. I feel like we do need to hold back our reactions until we're on the air. I'm very excited to read the end of this, and also yeah, very sad. I know it's been so great. It really has. Ted, good idea. Yeah, good job. If you want to find us, we are at Anamorphology.com and at Anamorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Anamorphs ebooks on our website. I'm not going to Google it. You could Google Naughty Boy Stank Bank. <laughs> no, because the problem is the actual quote is Naughty Boy Stank Bank. And let me tell you mm. what comes up when you try to search for that. <laughs> what comes up when you Google that, Greg? It's porn, Jenny. Jenny, it's porn. Oh. Oh, I understand. I think that's good episode title. (laughs)